Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. You know, before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the Birth of Outlaw Country Music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the rise of outlaw country music and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision in her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're all in a car right now talking music, so I hit record on this. It's myself, Eddie, and kickoff Kevin. And Eddie, you were in a band in high school. Yeah, yeah. Same band, Rum Tight the whole time? Yeah, dude. Even in... Well, I was in uh, a little band called Sprung Monkey. That's a good name. Yeah, it was, and I just did a couple of shows with them. I was... I think I say it. That's a good name for a band, Sprung Monkey. That was high school. Sprung Monkey. Sprung Monkey. Sprung Monkey. Yeah, I hear you. What was that name for? I don't know. It wasn't even my band. They just needed a singer for a second because they were just instrumental. I mean, I'll come in, I'll sing a few songs, and I sang like. God, would you ever be in an instrumental band unless you're like Beethoven? They were like jazz guys. Oh, okay, that's cool. Then, but you sang Push with a jazz band? Oh yeah, I changed them up. I was like, dude, we got to do songs that people want to hear. Did you watch the Barbie movie? No, not yet. I wanna push you around. They play that on. Well, I will. Well, I will. Dude, let me tell you what's cool about movies right now, is that kids nowadays are learning songs. That our songs, like 90s songs, because of movies. The Guardians of the Galaxy. Yeah, it's good. Always have great soundtracks. soundtracks. And my kids are listening to, like, Space Hog. Because of these movies, I'm like, dude, this is awesome. This is so cool. They listen to Sprung Monkey? Not Sprung Monkey. Did Sprung Monkey ever get famous? Nah. Nah. They only played coffee shops. and Are you sure it was not another band named Sprung Monkey? No. Sprung Monkey? Mike, will you Google Sprung Monkey? Arctic Monkeys? No, I know Arctic Monkeys. Yeah, that's a product. Sprung Monkey, we played a couple of coffee shops, and then a couple of guys went to A&M, and a couple of other dudes went to Texas. So you were Sprung Monkey, then Rum Tide. Then Rum Tide, that was my band. And Rum Tide, why was it called Rum Tide? Uh, I don't know, we kind of had like a beach, very Jimmy Buffett meets Pearl Jam kind of style. We just loved the whole beach vibe, and then a friend of mine was like, hey, why don't you do like rum, because rum's like a beach drink, and then Tide, like the ocean Tide. Rum and a- Tie. And at that time, I was like, dude, that is genius. Got it. Was a, sprung monkey. a band? Yeah. Exactly. There was a sprung monkey. I knew it. 91-2002. I thought you were in that band. That's when we were that. active. Okay, when we were active. Buddy? Eddie said he sang two songs with them, and they were covered. Who we weren't sprung monkey. 
That's pretty sure we were Sprung Monkey. He's like, actually, that was just my favorite. Michael Cutter's music was Sprung Monkey. Alternative? It's like jazz. Brought a guy named Eddie Garcia <laughs> yeah. in for a little bit. Can you imagine if you are on the Wikipedia? <laughs> yeah. I remember Sprung Monkey. You really? Yeah. Okay. Um, obviously, The Raging Idiots, our band now, but I was in a version of it in high school, and we played churches mostly. You and the original Raging Idiots? Yeah, just two people from school. Was this before Concubine Kings? Well, our original name was Concubine Kings. And we had to change that <laughs> because we wanted to play churches. <laughs> I could just hear the pastor like, what the hell's wrong with you guys? So, you know what a concubine is, Kevin? No. It just sounds... They're like prostitutes. prostitutes older uh, days. But we called ourselves the Concubine Kings. I don't really know what it meant. <laughs> Basically pimps. Yeah, so we were playing... That's it. We were playing churches and we'd play parodies but make them jesus-y so instead of bad to the bone we play gold up above do 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 there's gold up above do do yeah yeah and so we go really uh -huh. <laughs> that's funny we had like four or five of those songs that we do and we were terrible and but they would we'd play in the middle of service it's crazy and so then we broke up and then i was doing a little bit of raging stuff by myself and then Eddie's Rum Tide band, I went and did a couple songs with them, much like he did Sprung Monkey. I just did a couple, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, And then the real version of the Raging Idiots, which is us now, was formed. Took all that time, you know? I was reading about these bands, though, and their biggest shows ever. What was the biggest show Rum Tide played ever, Eddie? The biggest show Rum Tide played probably was when you sang with us at Silker Park. Really? Yeah. No, not true, not true. We played a, a festival in South Padre Island. And there were probably about 200 people there. They pay you guys? Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Rum Tide. Tell me how that name again. Rum, Rum Tide. Tide because the tides come in. That's right. All right. Let's talk about band names from history. The Beatles. What do you know about the name of the Beatles? Beat. Spelled like beat. Like, yes. a, like a beat, not like a rhythm beat. Do you know what John Lennon and Paul McCartney's band was called before the Beatles? Oh, what are they called... No, Kevin? Hmm? No. The Quarrymen. The Quarrymen? Like, like a quarry? Like a rock quarry? Yeah, I don't know. Q? Yeah, I don't know. Hey, Kevin, uh, music trivia, ready? Let's go. I'll give you the members of the band. You tell me who's the band. Okay. Because Eddie will know, know all these. Yeah, I know. Adam Clayton, Larry Mullen Jr., The Edge, Bono. You two. Was it Bono? The guy? <laughs> yeah, yeah. His face was so confused until you said Bono. <laughs> yes. Chris Novoselic, various drummers, Kurt Cobain. Nirvana. Yeah. Various oh, drummer ended up. drummer. No, they had six before him. Yeah, but he was the drummer. Yes, when they busted, yes. But it said various drummers. Uh, Tom York, Colin Greenwood. Tom York, Colin Greenwood. There are only two dudes in that band? Um, um, I think there are a lot of members in that band. Okay. But yeah. They're the main dudes. Um, Tom York's lead singer. He's got a wandering eye. He does? Yeah, and when you go to their show, the the you know how like they have big screens? Yeah. One camera zooms in on just the eye. <laughs> really? Yeah. It's pretty funny. Radiohead. Uh, okay. Can you name a Radiohead song? No, but I know if I heard one, I would know it. Okay. <laughs> uh, the, I mean, the one that I go to immediately is the one they, they I guess they played occasionally now. The biggest one. Is it their biggest, though? Creep. Yeah, is it only because they wouldn't oh, okay. play it, it became their biggest? I think it's their biggest. Because I'm a creep. I'm a weirdo. What the hell? I never near. I don't belong here. here. Go high, go high. I don't belong. Go, go, go. Hey, hey, <laughs> hey. 
Oh man, yeah, that hurt. I can't get there. Okay, Anthony Kiedis. Oh, I know that name. Flea. Oh, um, Red Hot Chili Peppers. Good. That's cool. Yeah. Mike Dirt. Trey Cool. Trey Cool. Billy Joe Armstrong. Um. Um. Mike, the Eagles. Mike's about to punch in the oh, face. God. Green Day. Keith Richards. I just know Keith Richards. What band is he in? <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to punch you in the face. Mick Jagger. Um, wait, is this your band? No. No, yeah, you're tired. Rum Dad, Sprung Monk. No, your, your band is Pearl Jam, right? <laughs> Keith Richards, Mick Jagger. Uh, I see, I know both their names. I don't know what band. Uh, wow. That is, that's crazy. The Rolling Stones? Ever heard of them? Oh, yeah. Okay. Stone Gossard. Oof. Eddie Vedder. There you go, Pearl Jam. Yeah. <laughs> Did you like him because his name was Eddie? Me? Yeah. No. I mean, it, it helped. I never thought about that. It helped a lot. How about Johnny Buckland? Chris Martin. Chris Martin, Johnny Buckland. No idea. Um, you don't know who Chris Martin is? Mm-mm. Um, Chris Martin of Fill in the Black. In my place, in my place. And you all yellow. Oh, cool boy. Yeah. No. I've seen them. Best films I've ever been to. You've been to their show. Yeah. Michael Stipe, Peter Buck, Mike Mills, Bill Berry. Never heard of any of them. R.E.M. Coldplay's best concert you ever been to? Ever been to, yeah. Best concert you ever been to? Around the room, Eddie. Easy. Pearl Jam opening up for you two in Hawaii. You picked the opener? What do you mean? You said Pearl Jam, but oh, opening up. No, it's just the whole show. Pearl Jam opening up for you two in Hawaii. It was incredible. Got it. Kevin? Coldplay in Barcelona. Wait, wait. Spain. Wait, 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 wait. You didn't know who Chris Martin was. I've. Yeah, he's been to Coldplay His trip. favorite and concert <laughs> ever was Coldplay. I know who Coldplay is. I don't know who Chris Martin is. That's crazy. I'm just saying the concert was unbelievable. In Spain? In Spain. That's cool. It was cool. Mike D, for best concert ever? Post Malone at Exit Inn in Nashville before he was really famous. Oh, of course. Of course, yeah. he's got to do one of those. Hey, awesome. Yeah. I'm so cool. <laughs> Bones? Post Malone at the Conoco before <laughs> he played. He was pumping gas. Yeah. Pumping he was just singing as he was working in there. In the backyard. That's right. <laughs> Suck it, Mike. Yeah, Mike, you want to play that game? Uh, probably John Mayer in Minneapolis was really cool. Yeah, that's cool. Garth in Little Rock. What do you mean? The one we opened up at? No, that's Fayetteville. Oh, Fayetteville. That's right. That was really good. But, yeah, I think that's it. Read what, what favorite concert ever? I'm going to go Lil Dicky in Memphis. Uh, this was uh, in, like, 2014. This just changed my life. Like, go on the microphone and look at the road. Grab the mic. Read, grab the microphone and turn his head completely around and talk to the people in the back seat. Your favorite concert is Lil Dicky. Hey, so L- Lil Dicky's legit. Lil Dicky's legit, but that's... All right, I'll change mine. Chingo Bling. <laughs> San Marcos, Texas. <laughs> baby Bash. <laughs> I'm going I'm going Baby Bash, New Bromble Amphitheater. Lil Dicky. Memphis. <laughs> yeah, like everything's wrong with that. My brother got shot. Oh, man. <laughs> It was so good, though. <laughs> Chingo Bling, Afghanistan. Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Afghanistan? Yeah, man. Should have been there, man. Yes. Oh, man. They're still talking about it today. 
You have another. You have another second favorite Eddie. If you were to list it. Oh man. Uh, let's see. Let's see. Let me think about. God, that. why are we in so much traffic? It's three o'clock. I don't know. And what it's are we? What's the percentage there? <laughs> oh yeah. We we're at twenty three percent. But we were doing this on a different show, Eddie. With it. The... <laughs> <laughs> That's just being natural. Dude. I'm concerned. Uh, let's see. Let's. We're see. in an electric car right now, and Eddie's freaking out because mm. we have fifty four miles. Don't look at the percentage. Look at the miles you have on it. Oh, the percentage is like, it's, it's what you do on a phone. You, see, you look at the little icon on the top. I when it turns red, ooh, dude, you're in trouble. Or not red. Although they do turn red sometimes yeah. if you get like less than 10%. Oh, the, in the car? Yeah. Oh. I've done that before. <laughs> how far were you from the house? Uh, Pretty close, but it's like, you. it'll say, um, you know how the phone will go, hey, you want to use lower power version? Yes. The car will do that What's too. lower power version? No AC? Probably something like that. Yeah, I would think so. All, yeah. Everything gets dim. The, the floor comes out and you do Fred Funstone feet. <laughs> <laughs> you have to pedal. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, biggest concert you've ever been to? Most people. Stagecoach for me. Does that count? Yeah. Festival, yeah. Right? Or, okay, yeah. Sure. Men to multiple. Okay. I don't know, Bones. What's yours? I mean, I've been to Stagecoach, but he already picked that one. Yeah. Uh, what about, like, Garth? Though? That was really big, right? Oh, yeah. 100,000? 100,000 people. 100,000? Where we played. But we played it. Yeah. That was crazy. Um, I don't know if I've been bigger than that. Smallest concert. Post Malone the Urinal? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. There you go. Thank you. Welcome to a special Bobbycast on this episode it's artists talking about jobs they had before they made it. We have such a library. We have almost 400 episodes here. And whether it's working in an oil field or a medical field or being a celebrity impersonator or a server, most of the jobs that these artists or creatives had had nothing to do with music. Most of them knew they wanted to sing, but they had to take jobs to pay the bills while still pushing for their dream. So there you go. Maybe this motivates and inspires you to keep going, or maybe you're just entertained by it. So here you go. We'll hear from Craig Morgan, Matthew Ramsey from Old Dominion, Lainey Wilson, Bailey Zimmerman, Craig Campbell, John Michael Montgomery, Trisha Yearwood, Nate Smith, and so many more. And this is a really cool episode we put together. What about you? What odd jobs did you have growing up? Odd. I worked, obviously, at Hobby Lobby. I did maintenance on a golf course. Never actually got to play on that golf course. But I weed-eated the crap out of it, mowed the greens, raked sand traps, drove a mini tractor, so I did that. You I w- never got to play on it? No. No, no, no. They didn't let the scrubs play on the course. Not even like an after-hours thing? No. It was, uh-huh. a, it was a country club. And so they wouldn't let us play. Let, I, I've played adult version. And then I just like would like kick holes in the dirt and you know, tear the green up on purpose. No, I didn't do any of that, Mike. <laughs> um, I did uh, worked at a marina for a while. Waited tables, obviously. But stuff like that, same thing. Just buying school clothes, paying the bills. Okay, so let's do this. It's the Bobbycast special with jobs that artists had before they made it. Kicking it off with Craig Morgan on how being in the military made him want to pursue a career in music even more. You know, your story into country music, and I'll just touch on this briefly, is really cool because you were in the military and like, weren't your superiors going, hey man, you got to go chase this music thing? Uh, that's the reason I'm here today. I would not have left. Man, I, and I'm from Nashville. I was born in uh, General Hospital down here. Uh, my mom used to always say I was supposed to be born at Baptist, but they didn't make it. They had to stop at General. Um, um, 
grew up in and around the music business my whole life. My dad was a musician. Kingston Springs was home. I graduated from Cheatham County High School, uh, went to MTSU. You know, so music was always part of it. Uh, avoided it. Uh, went in the military, and I think being in the military really made me really miss and appreciate not just music, but home in Nashville. Um, so it was always a big part of my life. You know what I mean? Uh, it, what, was it not? You didn't realize it was as valuable to you until you got away from it? Yeah, I think so. My, again, it's what my dad did. But my dad also had another job. Oh, really? And I thought, I don't want to do something yeah. that, that I got to do something else to be able to do it. Of course, then I got out of the Army and uh, and did everything else while I was trying to make it in the business. Uh, but if, if to get back to your question, it was a, you know, I didn't, I was always nervous about it. I'm like, I, my wife and I would talk, I was writing songs and kind of writing at songs. While you were in the army. While I was in the army. And you're playing. For fun, you know. Were you playing around? I mean, were you playing around the other, other oh, guys? Oh, dude, like in Panama? I just did a, uh, a, I just did a show, a TV show, and I brought in five of my buddies that I served with in Panama in 1989. It was my team. The guys worked for me. And we sat around and talked about it, and they talked about how I used to play music. And, like, I don't even really remember that. Like, you, did every, you don't remember? We used to sit around the barracks and drink beer, and you would play. And Tim, my buddy, was like, man, me and you played all the time together. Like, I, I have vague memories of that. I more remember all of the stuff that we went through. And they're like, yeah, but when we weren't doing all those things, this is what we did. You know, like, so they were all very encouraging. And it came to a point in my career, I was 10 and a half years of active duty and I had to make a decision I was going to re-enlist again or I was going to pursue the music. Uh, and I was just nervous about it. I didn't have near the confidence that a lot of people, you know, I talked to Blake about it a lot, especially early on in our careers. You know, Blake left everything, man, comes here. A lot of musicians that try this, <coughs> excuse me, they come here with nothing or no one. And so in my head, I'm going, well, at least it's where I'm from. I got family. I can, you know, I can work with dad. I can at least have that. So, and, and then if it don't work, I can go back in the army. I'm going to stay in the active reserve so I don't lose any of my time in service, my rank, any of those things. I never would have done it. I got to be honest. If I'd have been a guy from Arkansas or Missouri or Texas or Oklahoma, I'd have, I would never be, I would not be a country singer today. It's only because I was from Nashville and my family was here, and it was home to me. So I felt like my worst case was at least I'm around my family, and if it don't work, I'll go back in the Army. How long until you came back home, but also you're kind of venturing into this new world of country music, how long until you realized, hey, I kind of do deserve to be here? Like, maybe I'm not as good as I'm going to be, but like I, I can compete. How long was it in country music before you started <laughs> to feel that way? Uh, I'm working on it. Yeah. But who told? Then who told you? Because we talked about it before we came on the air here. Like people, when people invest in you, that means they believe in you, yeah. and that believes you're going to make them eventually down the road some money, right? Yeah. Because business and friendship, there's there's a lot of friendship in business. But you know, if someone's going to spend money on you, that they believe in you. When what that means, they believe that you're going to help them make money. Yeah, and that was who, some, who believed in you. Uh, you know, early on, it was a bunch of different people. Uh, ironically enough, it was one of the guys was a guy that wasn't even in the business. Uh, he was a contractor, um, and he wanted to be in the business and he had done very well with his business, made a lot of money. And he's like, you know, you got to do this. You know, I'll, I'll, if, if 
I will pay for your house if it doesn't work. Give it a year. And he's one of the guys that convinced me to get out of the Army. Cause, and that was the reason why. He said, if you get out of the Army and you try it, after a year, if it don't work, I'll pay your house off, and you can go back in the Army. I'm like, I got nothing to lose here. You know, and, and there was also a couple guys that had a, a small publishing company. Uh, Wes Mayers was one of those guys. And they said, we'll sign you to a publishing deal. And they paid me money. You know, it wasn't much, but it was enough. And they believed in me, which led to uh, Maypop Publishing, which was owned by Alabama, which led to Sony Publishing. So it was a lot of those little pieces. Um, but back to the other, the commander, my, my colonel at uh, Fort Polk, Louisiana, when I was at that deciding point. I'll never forget sitting down with him and the general, and both of those gentlemen said, we believe that if you stay in the Army, you will be the sergeant major of the Army someday. You're, you're fast-tracking. You know, you're, you're good at what you do. But we also think that you should at least try this. It was that conversation that led to me pursuing, you know, taking those 40 weekends when I was off and coming to Nashville meeting with the West Mayors, meeting with the Brian Schweitzers and all of these different people. And, and literally within a year of me leaving the Army, almost to the day when I was ready to cash in on my buddy's commitment <laughs> <laughs> and go back into the Army, Brian Schweitzer called me from Atlantic Records and said, I want to offer you a record deal. And how did that make you feel? Nervous, because I was wanting the publishing. <laughs> I had those small publishing deals. At this point, I was writing for Maypop. So I, I, had, I was getting a little more money, which allowed me to not have to work in vinyl siding. <laughs> and I was working as a sheriff's deputy as well. So I was doing vinyl siding on the side, working as a sheriff's deputy, and then doing security as a sheriff, off-duty sheriff's deputy. You know what I mean? And for uh, doing writer's nights every weekend. and You know what I mean? There was a lot going on. So it gave me a little bit more confidence, but it also made me very nervous because I knew, based on everything everybody told me, as an artist, in the beginning, you make nothing, man, on shows and stuff. Uh, in fact, everybody else will be making money, and you won't. Uh, but I was also making a little bit in the publishing, and I started started getting a lot of interest in a lot of the songs that I was writing. So I thought, you know, I'm, I might try it. Uh, this is at that point. So I'm going to try it. When I left the Army to come here to pursue the music, it was not to pursue it as an artist. It was to pursue it as a songwriter. Because I had a wife and two kids, and I knew that you could make money writing songs, and I could still do other things to make more money, you know? And then in the process of writing my songs and doing that, I was doing my own demos, and then I started doing other people's demos. And in that one year's time, it turned into that phone call, but which was really weird the way that phone call came from, where he heard my music. It wasn't through an A&R team. It wasn't through a publicist or a publisher. It came from a guy who boarded his horses who I knew, who every time I would demo my music, I would take it to him, and Jeff would play it. And this guy, Brian Schweitzer, happened to be boarding his horses at Jeff's wow. stables and heard it and asked him, who is that? And he told him, and he called me. And he made a decision that he wanted to sign you from just listening to a, to a demo. Wow. Called me and said, can you come in? I was on my way home from a writing session, had, had the third shift with the sheriff's department at that time. I said, yeah. And he said, where are you? And I said, I'm on Interstate 40, but I can turn around. I had a Jeep Wrangler, and I'll never forget. I cut across, cut across the interstate, right in the middle of the interstate, turned around and came right back 15 minutes. I was in the office, and they asked me to sing something. And I said, well, I mean, you know, they heard one of the demos. They said, sing it. I want to hear you sing it live. 
I'm like, well, I don't really play it. It's a pianist. It's just, and Al Cooley was there. Al Cooley was one of the most horrendous A&R guys, a brutally, beastfully honest A&R guy. Looking back, he was one of the best. But he, I just remember he had this reputation of being, like, mean, terrible mean, you know. But what it was, he was honest, and he probably saved a lot of people's lives. Um, and they had me sing a song uh, called 302 South Maple Avenue, Acapella. And so I sang it, and uh, literally, right, sitting like this right here, 302 South Maple Avenue. And I sang a little bit, and he says, we'd like to sign you to a record deal. Jeez. Yeah, just like that. Strangest thing ever. So I'm like, oh, yeah, sure. He goes, you have a attorney? I'm like, yeah. How about management? I'm like, yeah, yeah. So I walked out of the office, and I called my wife. Uh, no, I did not call my wife. I did not because I, I got home. And I said, I just got offered a record deal. And she said, what did they say? I'm like, I said, they asked me if I had managers and attorneys. And she, she, what did you say? I said, I told them, yeah. And she's like, well, you got a manager? Like, and I'm like, no, I got to find a manager. <laughs> I didn't have nothing, you know? That's wild that it all came from a, yeah. a, a horse. From, from a guy who boarded horses. Crazy. He owned Joe Go Quick, the world champion quarter horse at the time. And I would take him music, and if Jeff liked it, he would let me ride Joe. And if he didn't like the song, he'd put me in Not say, today, Go Craig. Yeah. <laughs> Here's Matthew Ramsey from Old Dominion on how he chose music after getting his degree in art illustration. When you were in Virginia making music, about what year was that? When you were, when you were dedicated to music, but you were not in Nashville. Uh, that was probably 2000. So you're 18, 19, 20 years old? No. 23 years old? I mean, old? yeah, yeah. Probably 20. How old am I now? I'm, I'm actually 43. So So if that's the case, then why not move to Nashville then? Did you have a different career path in mind where you were going to do it from Virginia? Was it slightly different than what you've expected? Yeah, well, I mean, I went to art school. I got a degree in illustration and... um I you know those are two I was passionate I am still passionate about both things and um I kind of got to the end of college and thought I can't half ass both of these things I need to focus on one and music wound up being the thing I chose so then I sort of did yeah you know, I made like a self-funded you know CD and and just got to the point where I felt like I had exhausted everything in that area and played everywhere I could and, you know, made my money back on my CD and it was time to to take another step. The Going into art school, what was that plan? Let's say the music thing didn't work out. Or you were at the crossroads and you didn't choose music. I think yeah. that's the better question. Yeah, yeah. Like what was the plan with the illustration? What, what was the career outlook there? I mean, there are, you know, you start to realize, I started to realize on my senior year when you're, you're kind of just doing all these independent studies and things and you start to realize that all your professors are starting to view you as your, as their competition. So you start to see like, well, I'm going to be able to maybe teach or, you know, pick up some, you know, magazine illustrations or. Like is that um, drawing? I mean, talk to me like a dumb guy because that's what I am. Yeah, here. it's all of it. Painting, yeah. drawing, um, printmaking, um, stuff like that. So. Painting a picture on a canvas? Yeah, yeah. You can do that? Yeah. You're a good artist like that? Yeah. Huh. Pretty, I can hold my own, yeah. Do you ever, do you <laughs> do that for fun at all? I, yes. I mean, for, I just painted recently a picture um, for the first time in a while, um, which was very therapeutic and um, I don't want to do it more. I, I posted a little thing on my own Instagram of it, but it's gone now. But um, Like if I was naked, 
<laughs> I took several uh, years of figure drawing classes yeah. where someone would come in and we had those in college. Yeah, yeah. And they'd be like fifty bucks if you go stand naked up yeah. in the and I was broke, but I wasn't that broke. Right. I always thought about those people like, man, you must need this money. I thought about it in the same way, in two ways. Either I was envious of the fact that they had no inhibition at all. Right. That they would go, hey, whatever. If sure. people need to draw something, I'll show my wiener. Right. I was so embarrassed and I'm still so embarrassed of my wiener that I just wouldn't. We had a bit on the show one. And I, I'm, I mean, I'm a quarter hey. joking, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you're laughing, so I guess I got to be like, I'm joking. But uh, we, we had a thing. This is when we were in Austin and I was... Um, Pretty early in my career, I just started to build my syndication company. We were doing uh, mostly pop and hip hop stations. And we were, you know, at the time, I was a wild and crazy guy. Now I'm just a guy that gets trouble because I say things sometimes that the industry doesn't want me to say. But then I was just being an idiot right. for no other reason than just being an idiot. And so we did a bit where we had an artist come in and the loser had to get naked and be drawn. And I lost. Ooh. And I had to sit in a room like a closet and he, in him, I remember him eyeball for no other reason than just drawing it the right. He had to eyeball my dong. Yeah, so you did. You did it, huh? Wow. What I avoided for years, yeah, I yeah. did it in a radio segment. Wow. Well, I mean, you faced your fear, though, so that's good, right? So would you do that to me if I if I was like, I would like to pose nude and have you draw a picture? I don't think I could do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Heath Sanders talks about his crazy journey from working in the oil fields to getting a record deal. I'm trying to just kind of get a grasp on when you started to go even if it's not for a career i want to go out and sing and make a little extra money because that's what you were doing when i met you you were singing at a bar right yeah so so my first love was was drums got my first set of drums when i was 10 and then i played i played the drums on up through my teens and uh any sort of band in high school like rock band or no no my poor parents man we lived in about an 800 square foot two-bedroom house and uh, i practiced five hours a day and i don't know how they kept their sanity but uh um later on I think around, I was around 19 or 20. I had a band called the Lost Gringos out of Conway, Arkansas, hit me up. And I went and drummed for them in local bars. Then I played for a band out of my hometown called Cabin Fever. Um, I sang a few while drums, I played. Drums, though. Yeah, all drums. So, did you graduate high school? Uh, Yeah. Okay, yeah. so did you go to college at all? Mm-mm. So, most people in my town didn't go to college either because nobody was going to college. You worked at the mill. Yeah. You know where I'm, where I'm from. Mm-hmm. So you finish high school, and do you go start working in the oil fields then and then playing music on the side? Yeah. Um, so I, I got a job in the oil fields. Right, I actually, I worked at a pizza hut. And, right out of high school. Yeah, right out of high school. Um, or I was in high school at the time. As soon as I turned 18, I had a regular that came in about once a week at Pizza Hut. And I guess he took a liking to me and my work ethic, and I, you know, I was took good care of him, him and his wife, and everything. And so the day I turned eighteen, he had me a job lined up at a uh, wellhead repair business out of Alma, Arkansas. And I done that for about uh, I done that for about a year, and then ended up going and doing some other stuff, trimming trees and stuff for Arkansas Electric. But yeah, I was doing I was doing music on the side, but that only lasted a couple years. After the drum career was over, me and a buddy. Uh, we started a little duo. Also, making drums for a local band, you're not making much money. No. I mean, you're ma- honestly, playing drums for a band, for an artist with one or two hits, you're not making that much money. That's right. You know, you're still trying to get your place. You, hopefully, the art, like for you, for example, if you're hiring a drummer, you know, you're going to pay him, you know, a couple hundred bucks a show or whatever it is, yeah. if it's a good show for you. But he's not in it for the couple hundred bucks. He's in it because if you blow up, he's going to That's be your it. drummer. That's it. The same way you're not making a bunch of money right now. Yes. But you're doing this because if you do blow up, then you're set. It's a time investment. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, yep. Anyone in the creative world have had to do it. I've had to do yep. it. So, okay, so you're not making a bunch of money, but you're working Monday through Friday. 
But are you playing shows Friday and Saturday nights? Yeah, but it, it's it, man, it's not. We're playing like the local VFW, and it's just all our buddies. And um, you know, after after the drum thing was done, you know, we started a little duo, and that we only played maybe six or seven shows, man. Before I said, you know what, this I'm, I'm getting up too early during the week, and then we're staying out all night partying. And it's crazy that they didn't let you sing. If you just sing one song, like you're like I sing occasionally on the drums. How do you sing one song and they not look at you and go, "Oh, you're the one that should sing"? <laughs> well, it's did crazy. you feel like you were better than the lead singer? Be honest, singing, just singing. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. Yeah, well, but then again, you, you know, you sign up as a drummer, man. I get you don't it. want to step on anybody's toes. If I was, you know if I mean? was a singer of that band and you started singing and I knew you were better than me, I'd be like, no more songs for that guy. <laughs> you wouldn't have sang another note. You would have sang one and beat me and been like, well, why do we have the drummer singing? You need to focus on your... <laughs> so, okay, you're waking up too early in the morning. You yeah. decide you don't want to wake up and then stay up all night and play and then do it again. Yeah, and then I just dropped it completely. I just, I just walked away from it completely. Is that hard? No. What was the duo no. called? Uh, it, we didn't, it, was just, it was just me and my buddy Daniel. <laughs> and, and what we, would you do? Uh, I would sing and play the bongos mm-hmm. i had a little set of bongos, bongos. and a tambourine that wow. i would like tap around on oh it was so bad dude it was so bad and he would do what <laughs> he'd play the guitar he'd play the guitar and sing and then and then when i sang he'd sing harmony for me and you quit music for, but how long did you stop doing shows um oh it had to be dude it had to be 11 years 12 years insane right dang isn't that yeah. that, that's insane it's nuts so but is there this thirst inside of you to somehow, at some point, get back out there, even if it's for fun? Or have you just been like, you know, that was an old me? Yeah, there, there really was, man. There, there always was, was that there. But you just, man, you, you put making a living in front of everything. You know, you can't be dragging in Monday morning. You know, when not when guys' lives depend on you. You know, and, and you being there in body and mind. Um but I, t- I tell you what, really reignited, reignited this, and I, I haven't had the opportunity to tell this story very much, so I don't, but uh, there's a girl named Charlotte Lee here in town. She's from Arkansas. And back bef- back when they cut my hours in the, in the oil field, I was looking for side work, and, you know, on top of playing music on the side a little bit, um, kind of had that idea in the back of my mind, but it just wasn't, it hadn't come to fruition yet. But I had a friend that knew I was looking for side work, and she called me up one day, and she was like, hey, I got this girl, she needs her van needs a ride and needs a driver in a van to go to Billy Bob's in Texas to open up for the Eli Young band. And she's like, pays pretty good. So do you want to do it? And I said, absolutely. So one weekend I spent driving Charlotte down to Billy Bob's and just being around that environment again and spending the night at Billy Bob's and watching Mm -hmm. Eli Young and helping them load in and load out. I caught the bug, man. I caught the bug. And it was the next week that, that I bought my PA system and started playing. Is that right? Yeah. So you going to help somebody else yes. get down there Yes. is what helps you get here. Absolutely. Yeah, I was ate up. By the time I got back, I was like, oh my God, I want to do this again. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink, shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? 
I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So when you get home, you think... I just watched it. It reminds me of how much I loved it. What's, your, what's the first step then? Do you start going, let me write some songs? Do you get the old guitar out? Yeah, you find something you can sell so you can afford to, mm-hmm. <laughs> to, buy, to buy the stuff that it, you know, that it takes to do that. And, and yeah, man, I, I'll tell you, my first gig out, Bobby, was terrible. What, did you still have a guitar, though? Um, yeah, yeah, I had an old guitar, yeah. And how was it? Terrible. It's awful. I still got it. Yeah, but was but, it good enough to go and play at a bar? Yeah. And is that what you did? It was good enough, yeah. So what was the, what was the first, first per, I won't even say show. <laughs> what was your first performance back after kind of <laughs> sitting out for 10 years? So uh, we discussed the other day, I mean, you discussed my buddy's restaurant, my buddy Ryan's restaurant in Leslie, Arkansas, and uh, he offered to let me come play up there. And it was a little sooner than I expected, so I had to cram learning a, a two-hour set list. You know, never, hadn't done this in 12, 13 years. And uh, I get up there, and I, I do pretty good my first set. Now, 
the town comes out. I mean, of course, everybody knows I can see. Wow, so people came yeah, to watch. Yeah, so people came out. I mean, the place was packed. And um, Coming out of retirement. Let's go. Pete Sanders. <laughs> okay. Packing out Ryan's Main Street Grill, baby. Um, anyways, I get up there, and, and my first set goes goes pretty good for, you know, for as polished up as I am, which is not very uh, – but the second set, now Ryan's got a mom, and her name's Vicky, and she is just – She's the biggest sweetheart you ever meet, meet in your life, but she's got a little on her side to her now. <laughs> what does that mean? And I mean, she's just got a little, she got a little meanness in her, you know. But she's just sweet as can be. And she, when I come off for a break after my first set, she walked up and she handed me a scotch glass full of Patron with salt and lime, and she said, "There you." And I turned it up, Bobby. And that was that was the biggest mistake I've made in the music industry to date. Because I got back up there, and by the time I'd got to about my fourth song, that Patron hit me, and I think about a third of the people left. They got up and Why left. You, now, I don't know if you're being you know, a little facetious, exaggerating mm-hmm. a little bit. You Do you think that you what, were slurring? You, I, your guitar playing wasn't as good? Yeah, I think I started probably missing chords yeah. and slurring a little bit. And, uh, yeah, and uh, the hometown was pretty disappointed in me. I come down off the stage, and I and I told Ryan, I was like, dude, the, I think this is, I don't think this is for me, man. I, th- I don't think this is for me. Oh, period. Yeah, like, I was you, like, dude, you were, I, you I was were humiliated. Grand opening, grand opening, grand closing. I was like drunk. That. Yeah, I was drunk, but I was humiliated, something something fierce. What did he tell you? He's like, no, nah, dude. No, nah, dude. You're meant to do this. So what's next? What did you do after that? Did you get there again? Yeah, yeah, I ended up playing Ryan's a few more times, and the local VFW, there's always the VFW, man. Um, what, would they give you 50 bucks or anything? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, tips and 50 bucks, or they charge a little cover and, you know, a couple, three bucks, and you make make gas money, man. That's really what, what it was for me, dude. It was all about buy, being able to buy my lunch at work, you know. Gas money and also some sort of fulfillment, right? Like you had the bug. You needed the bug to be fed. Sure, yeah, yeah. So at what point did you make that video did you start to play bars and make a start making a little more money as you started to get better was there like a scene near where you were in arkansas where you could play a bar and they'd give you 100 150 bucks or so that's really it yeah the the crowds once i stuck with it the crowd started kind of turning out and and local businesses you know word spreads pretty fast in those little towns and you know on facebook and stuff and i think i had about 500 followers on my facebook so um word was getting out and i started playing some restaurants and bars in in conway and clinton and stuff and um yeah, it was uh, it was pretty wild, man. To look back on. When I heard you playing that that what bar was that you were playing in? When I heard that clip, the Stapleton one. Oh, I was in my bedroom at my house. Oh, that wasn't. I guess that's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yep. I was thinking of another video of you playing in a bar somewhere that someone had sent me. But yeah, that's right. It wasn't your, yeah. your bedroom. What kind of places were you playing at that point? Same just, same stuff. Yeah, just little restaurants and little bars, man. I mean, t- mostly it was like like if I played a bar in in Marshall, like a place like Ryan's, you know, people came to listen. If I played a a, a bar in Conway, a third of the people came to listen, and the other two thirds were just there to eat their meal. And yeah, I was background noise. So, did you think that you had a career at all, or you it, the day you recorded that in your room, did you have a, just a sliver that you could do this for a living? No. That, that's that's really? me being honest. I believe I'm, you. Yeah, hundred percent honest. No, sir. Not not ever. Not ever one time did it ever cross my mind. Hey, man, you might have a chance in Nashville. You might have a chance to make a living doing this. Had you ever been up here to Nashville? Mm-mm. I've never seen the town. So uh, one night I'm on Facebook and a friend said, "Hey, did you see this guy Heath Sanders? He's from you know around where we're from, obviously." And I was like, uh, "No, let me watch it." And I get videos. Good God, 
I mean, I'm ta- if somebody oh, sings, bet, period, I'm tagged in it. Well, dude, any video, I, any video I comment on TikTok or Instagram, hey, dude, can you tag Bobby and let? <laughs> <laughs> so TikTok's like, but Facebook, you know, people leave music on my car if they know, you know. But it's, I mean, that's the tree that I grew. Sure. So I ain't hating the tree. Yeah, I own it, bro. But sometimes the tree will drop a nut on your head. You're like, oh, that hurts a little bit. <laughs> yeah. you know, you know? Yeah. But it's it's a great tree. But I was like, all right, let me let me just look at it. Because somebody from where I'm from is going to get a little more of a look than somebody not. Yeah. At least a, a first look. And I was like, let me see if this guy's any good. And I heard you, and I was like, wow, that guy's pretty good. Then I remember I messaged you on Facebook and just said, hey, Heath, it's by Bones. And you didn't message me back for a little bit. Because I think maybe you thought it was a spam account. Yeah, I was on the phone with my tour manager. Because he's the one that called me and told me you wrote me. Because you wrote me on my music page. And he called me and told was me and I called him back. Was he running the music page? Or is he, was he, he He was on part it? of it. Yeah, yeah, he was on it. And so he that, saw me message Yeah, he you. saw he saw you. I actually saw the message pop up after he had called. I would got off and, and the, the banner was still up. Um, but I ended up calling him back. And, and I was like, man, that, I don't think that's, I think that's a spam account. I think that's some. So then one of my producers, Morgan or Elena? That's Morgan. There's Morgan. Yep. So Morgan now works with me on my management team. Mm-hmm. But she messaged you. was like, no, that's really him. Yeah. And so you and I talked. And I don't remember if I said, hey, was, was it like, hey, get to Nashville tomorrow or this week? or what? I don't remember, man. Me it, that's such a blur. Uh, but what's crazy, what's crazy is that when Morgan answered the phone or when I answered the phone, it was Morgan. Like, dude, I felt like I knew her. <laughs> I've been listening, dude. I've been listening to you guys for five years. I'm talking religiously every morning from six to ten, dude. That was it. I mean, I work by myself. So. It could have been a person pranking you as me too, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. No, but, I get it. I get it. Yeah. And I, I remember telling Morgan, "Hey, let's get him to Nashville." And you drove overnight, if I'm remembering. I don't think so. Here's the deal. Here's why I don't think so, and I don't remember it very well. It's but, a better story if you say that. But well, go ahead. I know it kind of <laughs> is. I know it kind of is, it's and foggy. I don't, I don't want to kill it. But go ahead. Um, so here's the deal. Here's the truth, man. When my phone went off and it was you, I was sitting down. I was sitting there in my living room with my pen in my hand and my guitar in my lap, writing bloodline. Writing bloodline. I had a first verse and a half a chorus written when the phone. That's the first song I ever wrote, dude. Like oh, ever? Yeah. Well, you, are, I tr- you weren't really well, considering yourself a real song. I tried right to now. write a couple songs in my early twenties back when I was doing the show thing, and they were so bad, dude. They were so bad that I didn't ever try again. I just thought it wasn't for me, and. I woke up, I think it was Sunday. I think it was a Sunday you reached out because I woke up that day like, man, I ain't got nothing to do. Let's start, let's try to write a song because the video just went viral and it kind of inspired me a sure. little bit. And so that was crazy. The first time I'd ever picked up a pen in 13, 14 years, phone goes off and it's the DJ that I listen to every morning, the morning show I listen to every morning for five years. You know, it's like, I don't know what kind of time. And anyways, no, listen. That's crazy, dude. It, it, That's crazy. Abs- it could be some sort of divine. Something. I just don't like to throw myself in the mix with, yep, me and God, we worked that out. We had a little, <laughs> we had a little talk. <laughs> I knew it. Bobby making phone calls, yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but no, I ended up calling my buddy Jamie Jones as soon as I got the phone with you um, the next day because you invited me down to sing one of my songs. Well, dude, I didn't have a song. I had half a song. So I freaked out, dude. I agreed, but I was freaking out and See, I didn't know you didn't have yeah, a song. Dude, yeah, dude, I didn't. Uh, and I called my buddy Jamie Jones, which lives in Dardanelle, and I think we spent a, d- a day on it. And because I, I think it was only like two days you gave me to get to Nashville. Um, but I, I, that's why I say I don't think it was overnight because me and Jamie finished the song like the next day, and then I was sitting in the motel room the night before the show, learning how to play the dang thing and trying to remember the words. So you come in, you perform. And didn't you leave with one of them 
or like go somewhere with one of them? Yeah, first I went and walked around Sony with with LT. Um, and so she they liked it. you. They didn't have to do that. Too. Yeah, no, they they introduced me to all the staff, and then and then uh, Brian said to call him after we left there. So we went and hung out with Brian at Universal and went up to his office and sit and listened to a bunch of uncut Chris Stapleton stuff and a bunch of uncut Eric Church stuff, and it was awesome. That's man. that's got to be cool, dude. It was crazy. That'd I left. Worth the trip I alone. left there with a stack of vinyls. I could barely get out the door, man. It was so killer, dude. That my first trip to Nashville, and I get to go do that. Really, that was crazy. So how did because. I've known George for a long time. How did you guys get into contact? Um, so I met my management pretty early on, which is Pete Hartung at L3. And he managed, he manages Justin more. Got it. Right? Um, Justin is on George's label. And Pete had told George about me early on. They didn't get too excited, man, really. Um, but George did come out when we went out to cut five sides, which Bloodline was was one of them. And then... Uh, Proud and Down in the South, which we re- ended up releasing independently. Um, when we went out to cut those at the castle, George ended up just popping up. And I was like, well, Pete, who's that? And he's like, oh, that's that's the head of Valerie. And that's that's that, you know, that's that's Justin's guy. And I was like, awesome, man. And uh, so George ended up hanging out with us the whole day. And George has just kind of kept tabs on this thing the, the whole time, you know, this whole time. He's just always kind of been, you know, in the background. Um, and then he, he got me a meeting with Borchetta one day and I had four songs total in my catalog, man. I played Borchetta three songs and he was like, well, you got any more? And I was like, well, I got one more. And he's like, well, play us your full catalog, you know? <laughs> but, uh, yeah, George has just always kind of been there, man. Did you get a publishing deal first? Yeah. Yeah. At Sony. I think they changed it. They changed the name the other day to Sony, Sony music publishing or something. Um, so that's got to be pretty cool that they're paying you to write songs. Heck, you didn't, you didn't write a song until... I know, dude. That's what's <laughs> crazy. And I told Pete, you know, man, I had, you know, being being established and having a life there in Arkansas and having bills to pay and all that and not being able to just jerk up and, and move. Um, you know, I told Pete, you know, man, I'm, I'm not some spring chicken. You know, I need a paycheck before I m- make that leap. And sure enough, man, we got the... We got the pub deal before I even had an address in Tennessee, which is which is something something to be said for Sony there. How know? crazy was it to, to quit your job, like a work wor- to come and do music? It was terrifying, dude. Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah, that took a lot of soul searching, man. It really did because that's you don't walk away from a job like that in Arkansas because once you once you leave it, you never get it back. You've got a hundred guys behind you that are that are just as dedicated and just as hardworking that that are waiting to take your position. Um, so I knew that there was there was no return if I you know if I jumped in it was it was both feet first and but also how exciting it was amazing right yeah so but uh, did you write songs drive back and forth for a while did you come to Nashville yeah. and Arkansas yeah a year and a half uh, a year and a half I would get up this was my schedule I'd get up on Sunday and I'd drive was it, six, it was about six and a half hours drive six and a half hours to Nashville and I'd write Monday Tuesday Wednesday and typically Thursday morning and then I would drive home Thursday night. And then we'd play show Friday and shows Friday and Saturday, and then I'd drive back to Nash on on Sunday. Here's Lainey Wilson on how she was a Hannah Montana impersonator for years before she made it big. Were you just grinding on the road all those years? Mm-hmm. Is that how you were making your money? Yep. To pay rent or mortgage or bills, it was just all. Yep. And high school, I taught guitar lessons and I impersonated Hannah Montana. Well, let's both of these are something we got to dive into. So first of all. Let's start with the easy one. You taught guitar lessons. Yes. Are you a proficient guitar player? I mean, like, I know enough to get by. I mean, they, they weren't paying me the big bucks. <laughs> but, 
Um, I know enough to like teach somebody the basics. Okay. Yeah. And you were making okay money doing that? Yeah. I mean, I was, yeah. You ever grab an electric and play any of your leads? (laughs) On one string. (laughs) Okay. The Hannah Montana thing's crazy to me. (laughs) Yes. So you were, and you do look a little bit like Hannah Montana. The best of both worlds. <laughs> yeah, she might. Yeah. yeah, she does like... Uh-huh. So you were performing in high school as a Hannah Montana impersonator. Yep. And Five so, years. Did you do the thing where you had Lainey open up for Hannah Montana? Yes, I oh, did. Oh, you did? I did. Oh, it's got to be funny. No, okay, so, I really did. I was like, we're not leaving here without them knowing my name too, Bobby. Come on. So you would open. Yes. And then you would put on Hannah Montana as costume? <laughs> okay, so <laughs> I had a little portable sound system. And a little piece of junk, karaoke machine style thing. And I had the wig. I had the outfits. I would go to a lot of these birthday. It was like birthday parties, fairs, festivals. The last one I did was at St. Jude. And a lot of the time, they didn't want Laney Wilson there. They just wanted Hannah Montana to come to the party or whatever. So, But I wouldn't be sure to ask them. I'd be like, can, can Laney make an appearance too? So, yeah, I would I'd get up there, sing a few songs, play my guitar, and... uh and I'd be like, and up next. <laughs> and you would know the songs? Oh, yeah. Did you ever do The Climb? I did. You, you sang that? You know, and it's a funny story. Um, this is probably one of my most, like, defining moments of, like, you got to do this. You got to move to Nashville. I was at St. Jude, and this little girl had had brain surgery, like, two days prior to the Hannah Montana concert. And they had told me before they were like, you know, you can't touch the kids unless they come up to you and, you know, then you can touch them, you know, if, if they make the first move first. Right. And um, all, all my dating. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. So. Trust me. <laughs> Don't make the first move. <laughs> but anyway, I was just about to sing the climb and her dad, he wheeled her up to the front and she was singing every word to the climb. And I mean, I'm Hannah Montana's crying. My wig is on sideways. I'm like, Everybody in the in the whole entire building is just squalling. And anyway, I turn around, and then she's like, looks at me again, and I hand her the microphone, and she sings the entire song. Oh, wow. Like, by herself, just kills it. Everybody's crying. And she hands me the microphone back, and she meant to say, Hannah Montana, um, you're my star. But she said, Hannah Montana, I'm your star. And I was like, you know what? You are. And I have got to do this the rest of my life. And how long did you do Hannah Montana impersonating? Five years. Wow. Is that a, was that your best paying gig? Absolutely. I made way more money yeah. then than I do now, I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> I think there's a, often a misconception, too, with how much artists make until they're really making it. We ain't making nothing. It's almost like, uh, you know, lower class and then I mean, there's no middle class. Oh, no. Very rarely it's all is there or middle class. It's low and then boom. And yep. not just music, but anything creative, even in my industry, yep. I was broke, 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 not broke anymore. And it, yep. it went, because it, as soon as someone sees value in you, they start investing in you yep. because they know that if they invest in you, you're going to make them way more money. That's right. And it's always with any amount of money that you make, it's how much money are you making the person paying you. That's right. And that's why artists who, it may not seem like they're doing a lot of actual work, especially like where I come from. It's, yeah. It was a sawmill town. Yeah. That was real work. Yep. That was like hard labor work. Mm -hmm. But it's how much money can someone make off of you? Like Mm -hmm. what is your skill that we can, I use the word exploit. What's the skill that we can exploit and we can make money 
and then you make no, 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 no yeah. money. Then someone goes, oh, you're actually really valuable. Now we're going to pay you. It's crazy. It's like a whole crazy world that we live it in. It is crazy. Here's Craig Campbell talking about going from a maintenance worker at an apartment complex to playing piano for a major country artist before becoming an artist himself. So back to you, you're playing 13 weeks in a row. Mm-hmm. And you got to be like, this is it. This is awesome. Like I'm playing music and I'm paying my bills. Yeah. Like what greater thrill to do something that you love and to support yourself by doing something. Because most people, we're lucky, dude. Most people hate their jobs. Most people in life hate their yeah, jobs. I, I believe that. My my stepdad hated his job. Worked at sawmill. Hated his job every day. Came home. Was always like, I hate this job. But he did it so we could eat. Right. And he hated his job, but he did it for us. I, I never hated my job. Like I had jobs when I was younger when I golf course maintenance or you know, when I worked uh, at the marina. But I, I loved my job even when I was at Now you're loving your job and you're playing music every night. And so when do you go, okay, I think I'm ready to try something a little bigger than this. We had uh, a guitar player. He quit once and then he, he went to another regional band. And then he, uh, he came back to us and we did that. Um, and then he, he quit again. And when the, when a band member quits in this situation, wherever you're you're doing a regional stuff and you're playing six nights a week, it's very, it's very uh, rehearsed. Like the the sets, you play five sets a night, forty minute sets. You each set has its transitions and this and that. And I said, you know what? I don't want to have to learn. I don't want to have to teach a new guitar player the set. I just don't want to do it. So I called my buddy. Um, and he said he he was going through a hard time. He was already living in Nashville. I said, "Hey, uh, do you have any room?" He says, "Man, I'm I'm sorry, I can't not, nothing right now." He said, "But um, if I can get you a job, will you will you move?" And I was like, "Shoot, yes, a so, job, yeah." Like a- he was working maintenance at an apartment complex. Yeah, he says, "I think I know somebody across the way that that is looking for maintenance slash groundskeeper." I said, dude, hook me up. For an apartment complex? Yeah. Okay. So I came to town on a Thursday. My interview was on Friday. How old were you? 23. You come to town to Nashville with music in your head, but you know you have steps to before you can oh, even yeah. get to the music. Okay. So, you, so you're going to work, uh, for lack of a better term, just maintenance, like yeah, I said. Yeah. So you're going to work maintenance in an apartment complex. You go, you interview? I interview. Uh, she calls me back that, a- that afternoon and says, uh, we want to hire you. She said, I'm... I know you don't know much about maintenance because I was honest. I said, I've never done this. She said, but I can tell that you want this job. She said, so I want you to, I want you to have this job like eight 25 an hour. But I did get, you know, 30% off my rent, which was a big deal. Yeah. Um, so I did that probably 15 months. Really? Mm-hmm. And so at that time, are you playing the Broadway gigs? No, I haven't started Broadway. So you were in Nashville for a year and you hadn't started playing music yet. Was it driving you crazy? It was just because I didn't know anybody. I was I was very secluded. Uh, and But I would go downtown to Lower Broadway and to Printer's Alley and I would watch bands and, and just think, man, I, I want to do this. And this is another level of making it, you know. Um, so was it one, intimidating for you? Because when people come to this town, they always think I'm good. And then you look it was around. Very intimidating. You look around and you go, "Holy crap! These are people playing bars, and they're fantastic." Right. This, is, this is the melting. This is uh, the concentration of amazingness. So this, as as luck would have it, I was at a showcase one night at Douglas Corner, and there was a guy. Um, he was he had the Saturday night ten to two spot at the stage, which was 
the the big place to go down lower well, Broadway. And the ten to two spot on Saturday night right. was the spot you wanted. It was packed. Packed. I mean, it's party. shoulder to shoulder. So I met him, and he's like, "What do you do?" I said, "I'm a piano player." He said, "Really?" So that's what you were at the time. You were the keys player. Well, it was just easier for me to say that than to say a singer, because I, I mean, or every, even a guitar player, because yeah. everybody does both. So he says, "What are you doing Saturday?" I said, "I ain't got nothing to do." He said, "Come down Saturday night, and set up." That's interesting because you were a singer and you did play guitar, but you knew that there was to get my foot in the door. That yeah, that your piece was to play the keys because, because there were no piano players downtown. Wow. So, okay, there are no piano players. You go and he says, come play. So what happens? So halfway through the night, he, his name is Josh Brister. He said, uh, he said, the gig is yours if you want it every Saturday night. So you, you, you played halfway, you played half a set and he comes to you and says, Hey, yeah. you're in. And so, is it a thrill for you to be playing oh, in Nashville? My goodness, man. I, to be able to, to play music and make a hundred dollars or however much you make on a Saturday night, 10 to two spots, singing harmony with, with a, with a rocking crowd. It's, it was, it was the best thing ever. Were you still doing the maintenance in the daytime? Yeah, yeah. You'd probably maybe get a nap. And I was and I was on uh, uh, on call every other weekend. So sometimes I would be on Broadway with my pager on, sweating, thinking if I get a call, get a, you ever I, get a call during a show? I, yeah, I would have to go make sure. It, and and normal, no, most times I could talk people out of it. You could give them instructions on how to save themselves, or I could just say, "Hey, can it wait till tomorrow?" The only thing I couldn't. Say wait is if it was a uh, like a one bedroom and there was a clogged toilet. I had that was. Did you ever have to leave a gig? Nope. No, you didn't. Never, had, you to never had to leave a gig. I did have to make a few phone calls, but never had to leave a gig. So, so you was, do that that gig that you playing keys on the stage for how for at the stage for how long? Um, I did that for three or four years. I, three or four years. I played. I played piano. That was a, it. Was like a domino effect. I played for him. And then the Friday, the, the the Saturday night six to ten guy said, "Hey, I need a piano player." So I would come in on Saturday, set up at six o'clock, and play both shifts, and wouldn't even have to tear my stuff down. I just You'd leave it up, play both shifts, and then that went that Friday night. And then at one time I was playing six nights, uh, and two shifts on Saturday, Friday Saturday. So, so I was making, I was honestly making about a grand a week, cash. Okay, so you're making good money. Yeah. Did, were you able to quit your maintenance job at that yeah, point? Yeah. You oh, said, yeah. So you quit and, <laughs> and you were just playing piano keys, key, whatever. Right. Um, so that's what you're doing. You're, mm -hmm. the, you're the keys guy. Now, do you feel like, okay, now I can really sing? No, no, yeah. That that was my whole goal the whole time my, or my plan. I became, you know, buddy-buddy with the, with the owner at the stage, and I kept every time I'd see him, I'd say, when you gonna give me a shift? When you gonna give me a shift? Because during sound check, I would sing to check, make sure everything's working, and and they knew. They, I mean, they they uh, recognized, and so one night I overheard him saying, "Man, I don't have a, I don't have a ten to two for Sunday," and I'm like, "Here, I'm here." He's like, "You sure?" I said, "Yes." So he gave me ten to two on a Sunday, which is very no, it's it's not a, the most. It's not the most. It's not the best. Ten p two a right. Okay, on a, Sunday. on a Sunday, right? But I showed up with a seven piece band. I was so excited. I had and Beethoven even, Symphony with you, dude. <laughs> yeah, even though I was a piano player, I ha I hired a piano player. Right, bass, fiddle, steel, drums, guitar. I, I had the whole thing, uh, and it was just 
another one of those I've made it situations. Um, but I never got my shift. I never got my own shift uh, till a good bit after that. That was just a one-off. Uh, but I just kept on and on. And, and finally he said, he said he had, he needed somebody for Tuesday night, six to 10 at the stage. It's not a permanent thing, but I want you to, you know, whenever they're out, I'm going to give you the call first. I said, thank you. It eventually turned into those guys never, they, they would kept canceling. So he gave the shift to me and I did that for another three or four years. A year. Wow. So as you're working at stage, were there people that came through and you saw come through and then go up? Meaning, can you think back to anyone you were like, okay, this guy's really good. And they ended up being something that came through. Dirks was down there. He would, Dirks would come and play the stage. He, he, he played the stage for a little bit. Was he at that point special or did he become special later, do you think? I never really got to see him play. I do know, I just would hear stories about this Dirks Bentley guy. And he wasn't there long. I'm like, he was in and out. Like he, he, they gave him a shift and then I think he signed his record deal. So you play keys, and at one point you started playing keys for Luke. Now, before we hit Luke, did you play? Key, did you go on the road and travel with anybody before Luke Bryan, or was Luke still so young and new that yeah, he, Luke, he was just a guy? It was before he had his record deal. Yeah. So okay, so you were playing with Luke before record deal Luke right. Bryan. So how did you guys even meet? Who set you guys up? We had a mutual songwriting friend, um, and he, his name was Galen Griffin, and and uh, he had told or he had overheard Luke saying they needed a piano player for a, some weekend stuff. And he threw my name in the hat. I met, you know, I met Michael Carter, who was Luke's guitar player. He was also now he's Cole Swindell's producer and songwriter. Um, and we talked on the phone and he says, hey, let's do this. And they, and they were like, hey, you, you guys will hit it off. They're from Georgia. Y'all are going to love each other. So, um, so they hired me without even ever hearing me play. Went down and it was, you know, a couple of college towns. Um, but that was that was one of those when i got to do the shows with luke i knew immediately that he was uh he was he was on his way so you could tell with luke even early that he was special oh yeah no doubt why because i mean we he, first of all his his stage presence is is the same as it's always been i mean he's just he is that guy and we would do these shows in these college towns and i was blown away like i'm i mean i'm they give me a cd to learn these songs and and i've never heard these songs before but we'd go down and play Milledgeville, and we'd go down and play Statesboro, Georgia, and we'd play Athens, Georgia, and it would be completely sold out. Everybody's singing every single word to every song he sang. I'm talking about all of his all of his original songs. I'm like, how's he doing this? How did he do this? But it was a it was a big deal back then. The thing about Luke too, and I like Luke, and I just to preface this, he's a good dude, and you expect someone that big maybe not to be that you know kind of lose it a bit. Luke's a good dude. He's, he's oh, always, he I mean, yeah. he's a good dude. And so, um, you just wouldn't expect Luke to, and I've seen him do it before alone, sit down at a piano. Oh, he's great. And just, and, and people will give Luke crap sometimes because he gets up and dances and he'll, he'll, he'll dance and he'll do some Macklemore, but <laughs> sit that guy down at a piano and have him play. Yeah. It's, next, it's next, beautiful. Next time you have, you have him on a piano, tell him to render you some gospel songs. And he's played gospel. Oh, song. He'll get it. It's and it's everything that you want him to be, but don't expect him to be. And then he is, and you're like, "Wow!" Yeah. Uh, so you play with Luke. Now, were you with him when he got a deal, um, or were you gone by that point? No, I had he he we had already he had already decided um, I didn't need to be a side man. So wait, he decided? Did he fire you in a way? 
in a, in a good way or a bad a good way? way? No, it was great. He said, he says, man, I want to help you. Did you believe him? I mean, I had no other reason. I had no reason not to. Because someone says to me, "Hey, I'm gonna fire you," but in no. a good way, I'm be like, "Oh, come on!" It's no, not a good it was, way. It was all. I mean, immediate. I mean, one of them was like, "Hey, I want to help you. I want to introduce you to my publisher." Okay, so he really like led to you in a direction. Yeah, that's so cool. He, he invited me to town. Uh, me and Michael, his guitar player at the time, we started writing together, and those were some of my first co-writes. Um, he introduced me to a guy named uh, John Mabe, um, who was married to Connie Harrington. She wrote a bunch of big songs, Terry Clark, yada, yada, and then I Drive Your Truck. Um, and before I met Connie, before I met Connie, he introduced me to John. And John said, well, it's funny, you know, meeting you today. He said, my wife, Connie, needs a demo singer for a song. This is years ago. And um, he said, are you available? I said, yeah. So he hooked me up with Connie. Connie, my very first paid Demo. What was your what was the song? Remember? Somebody's somebody. Somebody, somebody. What was that song? I, it it never got caught. Okay, because I'm thinking and I don't want to be dumb and to be I just don't no, to no, be it, honest, I just don't know it. Honestly, okay. there's no songs I've ever done gotten cut except for one. That you demoed. That I sang. And what what was that one? Uh it was a song called Braid My Hair that Randy Owen did for St. Jude. Randy Owen from Alabama. Yeah, yeah. I even know the song. He sings it whenever I go to St. Jude and he's there. Yeah, I demoed that song. Wow. Okay, so you're a demo singer. So here you are. You're moving up the ladder. When do you start to get sniffed from labels? Oh, that wasn't um, that wasn't until after the, the whole Tracy Bird thing. Okay, so you play Keith for Tracy Bird. Yeah. So how did that end up happening? Um, his tour manager's house sitter was good friends with my wife. And once again, it was one of those, she overheard Tracy needing a piano player. And they hired me, gave me a CDs, some CDs to learn and never, never auditioned or anything. Just got on the bus one night, went to, did three shows. And on the way home, they says, you want the gig? It's yours. What was the highlight of your first Tracy Bird show? Oh, the highlight was when I, when I messed up big time. Like they, they did this Ricky Skaggs song and there's a, it stops. But I, let it sustain over the entire, it was just, it was, so you a, held it. Yeah. I held out and everybody else stopped and they, they all looked at me. And that was, that's, that's my one memory from the very first Tracy bird show. So from Tracy bird, when do you go? Okay. I want to grab a guitar and I want to be an art. I want to be well, a solo I'm, artist. I'm doing this all at, on lower Broadway at the same time. Okay. And this is when you're grinding. Cause you can play the thing with Craig too, by the way, is that we did in the show thing for years is that we just throw a song at him and Craig knows every song because you kind of had to, when you would play for hours at a time. Right. Right. So you and if you didn't you have to figure it out really quick. Yeah, you do four song, four hours of music, and then you know the occasional twenty dollar tip comes in for a song you never heard. You you go home and learn it just in case it gets called again, you know, or requested. But I'm I'm playing Lower Broadway all the while doing the Tracy Bird thing too. Um, so there was a bartender at the stage where I played. Uh, she was dating a guy that was in the radio promo business um and she invited him down she said you need to come see this guy um and he came down and he he would come down every tuesday night for i mean probably two years always telling me hey we're gonna do something you great yada yada all that and i had gotten to the point where i'm like okay 
put your money where your mouth is. Because you've heard it so many times so many people. Yeah, so one night he was he came and he's like, look, we're ready to do this. Uh, we want you to be our guy. Um, I'm going to bring Keith Stegall down to see you. Who's that? He's a producer. He produced all the Alan Jackson stuff, all the Zach Brown stuff. Um, and honestly, he was number one on my list. If I could handpick producers when I first moved to town, he was my guy. And I, so I, I couldn't believe it. I said, well, give me, at least give me 24 hours notice so I can prepare. So sure enough, he says, Hey, we'll be done this date. Um, we're going to be there from seven to eight. I said, all right, I'll be ready. So I hit him with 45 minutes of everything I had. And Keith said, come by the office tomorrow. And what's everything you have? Is it your originals? You throw a couple covers? Yeah, in yeah there? no, I, I didn't do any covers. So you did all originals? All originals. Could you tell by his face? Because I, you know, you auditions. I have auditioned for acting jobs and hosting jobs, and you watch the faces. Were you watching his mannerisms, oh, yeah. and, and how were you feeling as it was happening? He was, and and now that I've known him for a little while, he he was as excited as he would have ever gotten. Um, which at the moment was kind of de- not the best facial expressions you would expect, you know, for somebody that was excited about seeing some music that they were wanting to do something with. So I, I didn't know how to take it, but when he invited me to the office the next day, that was, that was a good sign. And, and that was in August of 08. So you signed a record deal. Signed a deal in September 11th, 2009. So it took a year to negotiate. Um, and then started the record, making the record, and then started my radio tour July 2010. And then Family Man came out. This festival and concert season will be all about the boots, and Tacovas is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacovas has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. Talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacovas boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacovas has first wear comfort, little to no break-in period. Like it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet, the money in your pocket. So stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. 
join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. <gasps> what? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Here is Trisha Yearwood talking about her nine-to-five desk job at a label in Nashville, and no one even knew she sang. She talks about how she landed the job as a demo singer. I had a nine-to-five job when I first moved to town. I was a receptionist at a record label, and I had to be at work at nine, and, and I worked at a label where there was a guy at the desk. So if I got there at 9.01, he'd had to sit there an extra hour. So he was really ticked at me if I was ever late. So I was always on time because I didn't want him to be mad at me. And you couldn't leave your desk to even use the restroom without somebody sitting in your chair because you're answering the phones. You're, the, you know, it, you're yeah. the gateway, you know, the whole place. And it was really depressing for me. Not because, not first of all, I'm, I'm watching people come in every day and do what I wanted to be doing. So that was hard. But secondly, just that structure of this is when you clock in, this is when you clock out. I think pe- some people are made for it. And I think some people aren't. And I don't think I am. I like people because they, oh, it must be so crazy. You just don't ever know what your schedule is going to be. I'm like, it's kind of different every day, but I kind of love that me that so, it's consistently different like yeah. there's a consistency to to it always being different exactly exactly and I, I like that I think I thrive on that I don't think I would do well I know I don't do well did not do well in the nine to five did you feel when you were working at the front desk and people would come into work in a profession that you wanted to do that you were as good as they were already and because I know it's frustrating when people are doing what you want to do but did you feel like oh I'm I'm there talent wise it's just I gotta put in my time my thing was I believed in my voice. I I believed that I had a voice and that I could sing. But I'm I'm basically an introvert. I mean, I'm not like I grew up watching Barbara Mandrell on television and she played every instrument and she danced and she did all this stuff. And I was not I'm not that kind of an entertainer. And so I really thought, um, you know, I'm I can sing. I'm a little bit overweight. I don't play an instrument really. I can play a little bit of guitar, but I don't. So I didn't think I had enough. I thought I've got this one skill that I believe in, but I don't have all these other ones. So I think for me, it was that I did have a strong belief in myself. And I don't, I think if I didn't, I wouldn't be sitting here. But at the same time, I, I had all these doubts about the things that I thought I needed to be able to do the, before I could be a, be successful at it. So you felt you had to develop, you, even then you felt like you needed to develop a bit more. Yeah. You weren't sure. so strong. No, no. I mean, and I went to Belmont where there were so many music majors and 
you couldn't, you throw a stick without somebody telling you what a great singer they were, you know, and I was not that girl. And even actually at, at MTM records, um, after I got my record deal, there were people at that building who said, we didn't even know, we didn't know you sang. Really? Yeah. So you weren't, you weren't one of the ones that were like, Hey, I sing, I sing. I was not, I was not. How how did you change that then? How did you start telling people I sing, I sing? I think it was because I, I was shy and I wasn't bold about telling people I was a singer, but after working at that label for about six months and answering the phones and ordering liquid paper and not, and watching people do what I wanted to do, I realized if I don't tell somebody this is what I do. If I don't really get off my butt and try to make this happen, then I'm going to get to do this for the rest of my life. And I reconnected. I had, um, I had a couple of songwriters. One was Kent Blazy that I had done demos for. And I, um, I just found those guys again and said, Hey, I'm trying to find, I'm trying to get some demo work. And demo work was my way out. Once I started to get enough work that I could actually quit my job. John Michael Montgomery talks about the many jobs that he had growing up in rural Kentucky. And John also tells a funny story about why he quit his job as a server. Like what kind of rural jobs did you have? Because I grew up in Arkansas and I had a lot of them. Oh, yeah. A lot of similarities with Kentucky and Arkansas. You know, the, I, I did everything from, uh, of course, I bagged groceries. I worked in uh, my mom and dad, even though they were musicians, they, they were butchers. They cut meat and stuff. So I would, you know, I did some of that. I, I helped build the... Uh, uh, Swimming pools. Uh, like digging? Guy. Yeah. You're talking about a tough job. Man. Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, you know, you got to get down there in the bottom, and you got to take a uh, a little paddle that forms the bottom, smooth it out. So, you know, when you put the the uh, vinyl on it, you know, it's nice and smooth and everything like that. And I remember we had, and it's always in the middle of the summer, you know, people want to pull. And nobody wants one in February. And yeah. yeah. And it's like... Uh, you know the they got these stainless steel type walls that you put up. Uh, they're in sections, and so we're down in there, and it's a hundred degrees outside, and the sun's shining and reflecting all that heat down on us while we're down in there. Now you know I was like, I don't know, I was probably eighteen, seventeen, eighteen years Still old. Still hot. Okay, how old you? And let me tell you something. I mean, we all pretty much stripped down to our underwear almost to do this job, you know, and a lot of times we did it in the middle of the night when it was cooler, of course. Really? Yeah, because, I mean, it was just so hot. And your knuckles would get all wore out, you know, from the paddles trying to... And then I remember one time we uh, uh, we didn't do a good enough job for the guy the, that owned the company. He pulled in there and shined his... It was, it was, all, it was almost midnight. He comes in there, shines his light down in there, walks down in there, starts taking his foot and just tearing the crap out of everything. He's like, this is not good enough. We ended up staying until about 4 a.m. in the morning. <laughs> you know, I was getting paid $3.35 an hour or something like that, it seems like, uh, you know. I mean, yeah, but I wasn't afraid to, uh, if somebody wanted to pay me to, you know, give me a job, I never did a job. Like I waited tables at Chi Chi's, which I enjoyed, but I sucked at it. I mean, I was, <laughs> you know, I wasn't afraid to tackle anything. And I put in 110%. I, I knew I was like, I'm not going to do this for the rest of my life, but, I, you know, I'm going to put it, give it the best I got. But I remember uh, turning 20 in a day, and in, in Kentucky, you can serve alcohol and be a server in restaurants at 20 in a day. But I loved the place because they had great chips, and and uh, and of course the bartender I knew pretty well. He'd sneak me a jumbo margarita, 
You know, I feel like it'd be hard to sneak a jumbo. Yeah, like sneaking well, a small margarita, but yeah. sneaking a jumbo doesn't yeah. feel very sneaky. Yeah, well, you know, it's uh, you got to know sometimes. Uh, you know, when uh, it was slow, I you know I was a terrible server. I, I, so they my shift was from eleven a.m. until like two or three, and in the middle of the week, wasn't a whole lot of people coming. On weekends, that being yeah, they don't put the A plus servers that uh, yeah uh, eleven to two or three on a Wednesday. Uh, yeah, yeah, they uh, and so uh, the the evenings obviously the servers were yeah, I mean they would make five six hundred dollars in tips you know and I was like wow you know I'd make maybe thirty dollars but I was singing uh, you know making music playing music at night so it worked perfectly for me you know because I went on stage at nine o'clock I finished up about one a.m. and and uh, gave me just a little extra money to put a little gas in my car and, you know, and buy some, you know. I didn't have to buy any food because we got food for 50% off there. So, but I ended up, uh, I had to end up quitting because, like I said, I was not very good at, at this job. So I had this couple and uh, their seven-year-old daughter came in. They sat down and they all ordered uh, daiquiris. And of course, the little girl they ordered a not a daiquiri for her, like a like a virgin daiquiri. Yeah, I'd say yeah, it's they call them not. Oh, they do nada call it that. Yeah, yeah, got it. And I forgot to write not down on. You got to be kidding! Me. <laughs> you got to be kidding me! <laughs> and so I go to the bartender who sneaks me margaritas, you know, and I told him I said, "Hey, uh, see that mom and dad and the little girl over there at that table there?" I said, "I ordered three daiquiris one of them's supposed to be a nada did i write nada on that ticket he looks at it, goes no that's a real daiquiri he went i went oh this is not good i said that little girl's drinking a real daiquiri so here comes uh we called him taco he was the floor manager comes out there and we tell him the situation you know and he goes over there and talks to him he comes back and he's like they're all cool. It's like we, we, you know, <laughs> they were wondering why she was drinking it so fast. <laughs> that yeah. stinks. That's uh, funny. Yeah, so I was like, I probably need to find another gig, you know, another job. This one right here probably, I, I don't need to be serving seven-year-olds. You know, I, I just, I'm not, I can't, uh, I got a one-track mind, basically. I mean, I, I, I can't shuffle other jobs i'm I'm terrible at uh what do they call it uh, like multitasking multitasking so, awful at it what would you be thinking would you be thinking about your music career all day is that what was really happening in your mind at the time when you're waiting tables or were you just like i don't like doing this no i mean i enjoyed doing it i enjoyed meeting the people i just uh you know the way my brain operates i just it wasn't you got to be able to multitask to be a good server yeah got, listen i was the best yeah. I was the best server in the yeah. land. So, you you know, you got three or four tables going on, and you got to, you know, I just wasn't able to do it. I just, I couldn't. It was like, I can sit down with a guitar, or I can sit down with a video game, and I will master the guitar or the video game, because I can spend hours at that one thing and never leave, you know. Or I can sit and watch a bobber fishing for hours on a day and wait for that thing to go under, and, you know, and, and I'm, you know. I got the patience of Job with that, but I can't. I can't do multitasking. I yeah. mean, basically, it's easy to distract me for one thing. You know, when you talk about how you played guitar when you were younger, what what's yeah. the uh, age difference between you and your brother? Year and a half. Wow, that's so close. Yeah. Now, did he have the same dreams 
to be a country star? I think we both actually, you know, wouldn't like we wanted to be famous right off the bat. We just loved to get on stage and perform. And then we got better at it. And then we started our own band, a little three-piece band with a guy, a bass player guy, a good friend of ours, Tim Williams. And and uh, we did that around Frankfurt and different places on the weekends. And then a, uh, then a job, a full-time, five-night week gig opened up in Lexington. And that was our dream, was sort of like, are we good enough to do that? But what was it five nights a week? Was it a restaurant? Was it No, a club? it was a club. Yeah, a club called Austin City Saloon. And, and you were like uh, the house band? Yeah. And a guy named Greg Austin played there. Uh, no relation. I mean, the, the Austin City Saloon and Greg Austin, I don't think they named it after him, but we used to go in there and watch him uh, play. And uh, I, that's where I met Troy Gentry at, believe it or not. We, me and him first met uh, there. So you met Troy before your brother did. Mm-hmm. And what yeah. was Troy? Was Troy, did he live up there? Yeah, he was from Lexington. Yeah, and he was doing like I was. He was just going around to different places, getting up on stage, trying to make a name for himself. And and we kind of got to be pretty good buddies, actually. And uh, uh, then when uh, Greg left Austin City, it got sold, and another guy bought it out. Uh, he was having a hard time drawing a crowd in there. And my brother Eddie told him, said, we can draw a crowd in there. So Could you? Uh, or was he just saying that to get the gig? Well, I think Eddie was just saying that to get the gig, but he was, <laughs> Eddie was, Eddie can, he's the best, he, let me tell you something, Eddie is, he, he can be as, he's just full of it. I mean, I love it, because he can literally talk, I mean, he'll talk, a, you know, fish out of water, I mean, fishing, or whatever, whatever the saying is. I mean, Eddie always had really cool cars because he just had that knack. I had pieces of junk <laughs> that I had constantly work on all the time. And I was like, man, he's got a good, cool, cool car. And then he traded it off for another cool car. But Eddie uh, was really good with that salesman. He could call people up and talk to them and talk them into stuff. And so the guy gave us an opportunity. Eddie says, hey, this guy's, we got to put a band together because at the time we were disbanded. And I was like, okay. I said, we'll get Tim Williams. Eddie's going to play drums for me. That's what Eddie did for me, played drums. And uh, Troy, I said, I asked Troy if he'd be part of the band. And he said, yeah. So it was me, Eddie, Tim Williams, and Troy Gentry. And uh, and I, we called it John Michael Montgomery and Young Country. And then we had a keyboard player. It's John Michael Montgomery and Montgomery Gentry, basically. And yeah, Tim. exactly. <laughs> and and uh, so, I mean, the guy gave us, he said, I'll give you guys two weeks. If you show, you can start bringing a crowd in here. We started packing the place. I mean, why do you I, think that is? Because why? I knew what kind of music that place, uh, Texas Two Stepping, was getting really popular at the time. Greg Austin played a lot of songs, and I would watch these people do these two step, Texas Two Stepping, line dancing. This is, you know, 1986, 87. And I was like, what kind of dance is that? You know, and they was like, Texas Two Step. And it was, that, it was beginning, begin, beginning to sweep the country. And so I went in there, and of course I played a lot of George Strait stuff. And I mean, I played. We, you know, we all sang everything from Bob Seger to George Strait. We we covered it all. And uh, I mean, and plus we were a bunch of young single guys that liked to have a lot of fun. So it was UK, you know, college town. I mean, we packed the place. I mean, we started packing the place, and then. Uh, you know, so it became a good gig for us for a while. And then uh, I tell, on Sundays, me and Troy was trying to make a little extra money. So we would actually get together and 
his dad owned a little restaurant. We talked to his dad and letting me and Troy go in there on a week on a Sunday because they weren't doing any business. He was thinking about closing it up. It's called the Grapevine, and uh, we asked him if he'd let us come in there on Sunday, and me and Troy would just do a little duo. And you were the said, original Montgomery Gentry, we, and I absolutely. <laughs> and every time I'd see Troy, I'd go, you know that we. Me and you were the first country gentry, <laughs> don't you? And he just smiled real big. So what's yeah. that dynamic? Yeah. Because did you move to Nashville first? And if you and your brother were already playing together, why did you not duo up? Like, Well, I mean, I here's, here's where my head was when I was about 24 years old, playing five nights a week. I was like, I saw a lot of the musicians around town. They're 35, 40 years old, still, you know, and playing four and five nights a week. And, I just didn't want to be that. I was like, I want, by the time I'm 30, I want to know where I'm going to, what I'm going to choose. Am I going to continue uh, trying to? I don't want to continue playing clubs. I either need to go to Nashville and try to make a living singing demos, writing songs, doing something. But I don't want to be a nightclubber the rest of my life. Uh, and either that, or I just need to go get a real job. You know, and have some kids and family and just enjoy music on the weekends. Like Build us on pools down 100 degrees underneath the ground with the paddles, swimming, pouring <laughs> it up. You're already good yeah, at it. Yeah, and so literally I uh, um, I had uh, made up my mind once I turned 25 I was going to make a decision to move down here. Well, just so happened Nashville started looking for talent outside of Nashville. And... Uh, and uh, there was a guy up in uh, Lexington that was doing a showcase for Atlantic Records. And the manager, that guy, stopped by the bar uh, to listen to this song that uh, that his artist that he got on, on Atlantic loved. So I sang it for him. It's called A Few Cent Short. I wrote it. And I got done, and I said, well, how do you like it? He went, I like you. He's like... If you'll let me manage you, I'll get you on the Lamp Records. I was like, nah. Wow, he said that? Yeah. Did right. you believe him? No. <laughs> I mean, I just, uh, I was like, this guy's just telling me what I want to hear. He, you know, I mean, uh, and I said, well, I said, it, it's a deal. If you if you get me on Atlantic Records, yeah, sure, I'll let you manage me, you know. Uh, Estel Sowers was his name. He's an old coal miner, eastern Kentucky guy, silk shirt and a gold nugget, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, there's no way this guy's even going to come through for me. Dang if he didn't, you know. And I remember riding down in his Cadillac uh, for the first time. We run out of fuel because he believed it had that little extra fuel thing on it. Yeah. He believed that. And right before we ran out of fuel, he looked at me and he said, those dimples are going to be worth a million dollars each. And I was like, I said, Estel, come on. I said, that's just silly, you know. Guy dreamed big. I loved it about him. You know, he had a little stutter and stuff. Had real deep voice. Was, uh, so we, I said, I said, you can't ever trust that extra fuel thing on there, Estel. I had to walk half a mile up a hill to a little white home, <laughs> knock on the door. Didn't have no cell phones back then. This was 1991, and uh, you know, little old lady was like, "We run out of fuel. We're on 65." You know, uh, so but did she have fuel? She called the uh, fuel station that had whatever they call it, 
uh, the AAA. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and they came down, brought us some fuel and everything like that. But uh, was that your first time going to Nashville? No, I went to Nashville a long time ago, back in uh, around eighty. I'm thinking it was eighty four, eighty five. I remember coming into town. We had this. I had this guitar player. It was me and Eddie and Tim and. And he was a long-haired rock and roller guitar player, you know. And uh, we come rolling into Nashville, and that's when Alabama had that huge Alabama sign there on uh, Division Street or Music Row, whatever it was. They had a huge store there, and they their name Alabama was on top of it, and it was just flickering. And I was like, "Wow, that <laughs> is so cool! I've got to go into there." Of course, you know, George Strait, Lionel Richie, Alabama. That's where I got all my chops from. I right. mean, you know, it was just like love songs and stuff like that. I mean, uh, but uh, uh, no, I mean, I, I just uh, uh, was fortunate enough. So getting back to the story, that guy, they came up to see that guy sing and uh, showcase, and it was right down the road from me, and uh, this, uh, they weren't impressed, I guess. By him. And yeah, by him. And so this guy comes into the bar, and it's on a weeknight, so it's like we could tell this guy's from out of town. There ain't nobody in the bar. Right. He didn't. He didn't look like he'd ever been there. Hadn't seen him before. So I get done with the set, and I walk over to him, and he's like, "Yeah." He said, "I'm, uh, uh, I'm from Atlantic Records." He's like, uh, "I was over there listening to this uh, guy, and he didn't impress me." And he's so I asked the waitress, I said, is there any other place, anybody singing around here? And she said, well, the best singer in town is right down the road here, John Michael Montgomery. Wow. And he went, really? And I said, uh, so whoever that waitress is You still don't there, know. You still I don't, don't know. know who it is. Thank you very much. We have her on the phone right now. Yeah. That's you there. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, but I was like, well, I appreciate it. And he said, you know what? I just, after that said, she, she's right. She says, I got the rest of them coming over. Oh, that's so visit. cool. And, uh, you know, and that's... Uh, what does your brother think about that? That, okay, you're going to go sign to Atlantic. Does he follow you down? Yeah, I mean, he's been my... Uh, or did he come with uh, you? Yeah, he, he come with me. I mean, we, we went to Nashville together. We did everything together. We, You know, he had, a, of course, he had a life. I mean, he had kids and married and all that stuff. But anytime we did music, anything like that, I mean, we did it together. I mean, he played drums for me. But uh, once I started coming to Nashville... I was playing at Austin City five nights a week. He had to kind of hold the roost down there because I now was recording Life's a Dance uh, from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then I would drive back and and uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, I would sing at Austin City. And so, you know, he was, him and Tim and, and Troy and all of them, well, Troy, I think Troy might actually had to, did his own gig at that point, but... You know, then I would come in, and, you know, because I still had to make a living. I mean, you know, I, yeah, would, recording I was making 150 bucks a week, yeah. uh, you know, and I wasn't getting paid anything to record at that point. Right, recording doesn't pay the bills. Yeah, and so anyway, I I, can, I did that for, uh, you know, I mean, a year. I did that for a year because they had a big changeover at Atlantic Records, and uh, Rick Blackburn ended up taking over the whole thing, and the uh, other guy left, and this and that, and we changed producers. Uh, you know, Doug Johnson came into the picture, and... I think basically was the reason that I have a career today. I mean, he uh, brought life's a dance. I love the way you love me, uh, beer and bones. I mean, he he was uh, uh, very instrumental.
This festival and concert season will be all about the boots. And Tacova's is your next stop before attending your next concert. Tacova's has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring. You're talking about men's boots, women's boots, um, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time honored tradition, timeless style, always on trend. And Tacova's has first wear comfort, little to no break in period. Like, it's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Plus, direct consumer pricing keeps the value on your feet and the money in your pocket. So, stop by your local Tacova store. Have a complimentary drink. Shop the new styles. You like the smell of leather or no? I love it. Yeah. That's what the whole store basically is. Fresh leather. Yep. Friendly staff. Or like the smell of staff? <laughs> I don't know. I guess I'm sure they smell good there. Many stores have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. What a gift, too. Regular live music and events. There is no in-store experience like this. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. T-E-C-O-V-A-S. Yeah. Yeah. Tecovas.com. Find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. Every week, we'll pick a new song from the list and talk about their placement on the revamped 2021 list. We'll also have guests join us, ranging from the artists themselves to the producers or simply other writers like ourselves who voted on them. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside and Britney Spears' Baby One More Time. There's so many fascinating stories that have been forgotten, like Midnight Train to Georgia, starting with a phone call to Farrah Fawcett, or how the Yeah, Yeah, Yeahs inspired Kelly Clarkson's banger Since You've Been Gone and Beyonce's Hold Up. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rita Wilson tells us about her first acting gig she got when she was just 16, Rita also talks about her first job as a ticket taker and how that made her want to be a singer even more. When you graduated high school, good student? You know, you said you I, went to college for a couple of years. What kind of student were you? Uh, not very present because I was always working. Working doing what? Acting. 
So by then, at 16, you know, I did the Brady Bunch. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, yes. I got my screen actor's card. I did not know that. <laughs> yes, Bobby. Would you like me to do the cheer for you? Because Wait, I what played was a cheerleader. I didn't know. Okay, so what role? So you're a cheerleader. I played Pat Conway. With who? With Greg and Marsha. <laughs> okay, so this was the episode. Greg had a girlfriend. She was running for cheerleader. Marsha was also running for cheerleader. But the girlfriend was kind of using Greg because he was a judge of the cheerleading competition. And so when the time came, it was a tie vote and he was supposed to be the tiebreaker and it was going to get him into deep, hot water with his girlfriend. So instead, he chose me, the cheerleader who really was a cheerleader in real life. <laughs> I've seen every episode of Brady Bunch and I, <laughs> and I can vaguely remember that. Po- I did not know. Yes. That was, that was yes. your first role? Yeah, that's how I got my Screen Actors Guild card. Was that show big though when you went? Like when Huge. You, were you Huge. starstruck by the, the Everyone. Act- mm-hmm. Like Maureen McCormick drove a chocolate brown Mercedes onto the Paramount Studios lot. You know, like, oh my God. You know, she's driving a brand new... Tra- and she was only 15 and a half. She had her permit. But she could drive, you know, with an adult in the car. So she had a Mercedes, which was like, oh, this is crazy. A 15-year-old with a Mercedes. And um, the producers were the same ones that produced Gilligan's Island and all the shows that I loved. And during the filming, um, Elizabeth Montgomery, who played Samantha on Bewitched, came to the set and said hi. So she was also one of my heroes. Like, oh, exactly. Do the nose, do the nose. So you're 16 and you're working. Are you like, okay, this is what I'm supposed to do. I know I have school, but this is what I really want to focus on. Or was it just, it was so much fun. Like, what, what is it for a 16-year-old? It was so much fun. And also, it was consistent. At that point, I also had an agent now. So I got my Screen Actors Guild. I get an agent. I'm now doing a ton of commercials. And I just kept working and working, and I never stopped. And there was a point where I realized, oh, my goodness. I think this is my job. I was going to college to become a communications major. Like, you How know, did you the, graduate the, high school, though, honestly? like if Oh, no, because I, I worked. Oh, well, we had a program at high school called 4-4. So you could go to school for four hours and then work part-time for four hours. And so I got them to agree that modeling after school for four hours <laughs> and doing auditions for commercials was a job. And it was because I was constantly... Uh, going on auditions. I guess there's so many kids there that act or in the arts where those programs are probably at a lot of the different schools because they have to be. Yes. Here yes. that would, you know, that would happen because there's not a lot of kids doing that, but that makes a lot of sense. But it's much more prevalent yeah, now. And you go yeah. to universities now too and they all have theater departments, film departments because it's just, you know, there's a need for more contact con um content and people who make the content so i think that's not going anywhere was there ever a place in your career early on where you thought you know i, I want to sing oh yeah but but to do that i may have to take two steps back like did that ever cross your mind i really wanted to and i remember having a very specific uh moment that you know i i had a job as a ticket taker at this concert venue called the universal amphitheater and it was an outdoor venue, and everybody came through there in the 70s. So it was, you know, Joni Mitchell, Carol King, James Taylor, Jackson Brown, Elton John, the Eagles, you know, you name it, they came through. And I remember sitting on the steps. I would take the tickets. Then they would allow us to watch the show. And I remember sitting down on the steps and having this pit in my stomach, like, how? 
there and be mm. a singer? How do you get to do that? You know, how's Linda Ronstadt up there? How do you find a band? Do I have to play an instrument? Like it was, it was like a palpable pit in your stomach, like a, a, a longing and aching, a yearning, and not knowing how to make that happen. And back then, if by the time I started really being becoming established, if you were an actor, you stayed in the acting lane. If you were a singer, you stayed in the singing lane. And there really wasn't crossover or any overlapping that happened back then. It was just, that's your, that's what you do. And if you were on Broadway, that was different, but Broadway people didn't do film. Mm-hmm. It was so weird. Now everybody can do now, everything. Yeah. I mean, like it's the mid nineties so... was kind of the first, yes. the first layer of people. Even then it was kind of weird. Like when Jennifer Lopez would do it in early 2000s. Yeah. But now everybody does everything. Exactly. You know? So, I, I think that's good. I don't think that we should be limited. Everybody's creative. Creative people do more than one thing. Did your so. friends know you could sing? Back, like, were you, let's say you're in the, at the tr- back in the trailer. Did, I mean, did they know you as Rita, who could sing really well, but is also a great actress? I'm just trying. I'm just finding probably, where probably no. But I went to drama school. I had I had done this small play called Vanities, and the director of that play said, oh, you, you seem to be liking to be on the stage. Have you ever had any formal training? And I'm like, not formal training, no. He said, well, you should probably go to get some, like Shakespeare stage training. And I was like, where do you do that? <laughs> like, stage, you mean like a sound stage at Paramount? <laughs> like, I literally, <laughs> I don't think I'd ever even seen a play. And he said, oh, there's these schools that you can go to. And he put me in touch with a woman that had come from this program in London at the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. So I applied and I got in. While I was there, they would have us do different things to kind of get us out of our comfort zone. And one of them was they assigned me to sing this opera thing. English? English. It was actually a Rossini opera, but um, uh, I, I had to sing it as a duet with another woman. And this woman was an amazing singer. And I thought, I'm not ever going to be pulling this off. But anyways, I did it. And I remember one of my teachers came up to me and said, I didn't know you could sing. I was like, am I? I like, am I? Was you call that singing? I don't know. But it was nice to hear that, you know, in, in a way. Bailey Zimmerman was just working a gas pipeline a few years ago, and now he's blowing up. Here is his story. What I read, though, was you didn't start off doing music on any sort of social media. Like even TikTok, mm. you were just showing off tru- trucks. You're yeah. Like, so what, let's go back then before music. You said, I'm going to get on. And did you plan to just do it for like your small circle? Or did you go, I got some real, I think truck people will follow me. I'm going to create a brand here. So I start. there's this girl in my hometown. It was Walmart. And she was a cashier. And she was like, I was flirting with her. And I was like, I'm going to catch you on TikTok because I had posted one video and it did just a, you know, a couple thousand. And she was like, you'll never hit 10,000 followers on TikTok. So I just kind of got it in me. I was like, well, I'm going to do that. So I started, I built this truck. I started just filming it and stuff and putting sounds behind it. And then it ended up getting a lot of traction. And then I got hooked on truck shows. So then I started like taking going? It. Yeah, going. Taking, taking that truck. Yeah, I truck took trip. it from just like building trucks and posting it. It's like, oh, I think I'm going to start going to these shows and maybe get some, you know, try to win trophies. And I got hooked on that in 2019 and then just kept doing my truck stuff. And then one day I had never sang before and I was wanting to get out of the pipeline industry just because of not seeing family and being gone so much. 
And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start building trucks as a profession. Not only am I going to post them, but I'm going to build other people's trucks. So me and my brother John started doing that. And like three days into business, I tried singing just in the shop. And this dude named Gavin Lucas from the same town I'm in was like, hey, man, I think you've got a cool voice. And I write songs. I can play guitar. Would you ever just want to hang sometime? And I was like, yeah, man, I'll hang sometime. I've never really watched anybody play guitar and sing at the same time. That's how it started? That's, That's how, how this it started? whole thing started, yeah. Dear God, I've never heard of a uh, more random, cooler, oops, but awesome story. It was very random. We, we like, jammed, like, three times, and I was just so in awe of him playing guitar and singing at the same time. He's, like, writing, like, this guy can write songs. So one night we were hanging, and he said, hey, man, tonight we should try to, like, really write a song and see if we can write songs, so... That was my first single, Never Coming Home. That night, we wrote the first verse. And mind you, this was like a weekend to hang with Gavin. And we wrote the first verse and then posted it on TikTok that night at like 2 a.m. And I woke up. And I like, kid you not, I woke up, had oh, almost 2 million views, a crazy amount of comments. I called my union that I was in that I pipelined with, quit. After one video and the next morning. Yeah. And you were already looking to get out. But listen, when there's not a paycheck coming. Yeah, yeah, we were laid off at the time, and got it. I just felt like, man, if I'm going to chase something, this is definitely something to chase. You know, you might as well try it. But what's funny is you're like, I'm, if I'm going to chase something, I guess it's this thing that just randomly popped up a couple of days ago. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, man, my you mom. Not, have you, did you never sing as a kid? My mom would always, like, tell me in the truck, like, oh, you should sing. I used to be able to sing before I started smoking cigarettes. I used to be able to sing and stuff, and I just always blew it off because that's my mom. You know, so I, I always just blew it off. And then over my life, I've had like three people tell me, man, I think you could sing. But I. But did you ever sing where people could actually hear you? No. It all started like two years from now or two years back from now. I like sang one day. And then after that, I had like three people tell me. And then sang the video. Where? Sang where? Just random, like a random place. I think it was up at the courts. Um in Florida, Illinois, like the basketball courts. Yeah, so what, what do you mean yeah. you're just, like, just right here, me and you, and you're like, you are my sunshine? Yeah, it was they're Hurricane. Like, like, wow. You're saying Luke Combs Hurricane. Yeah, Luke Combs Hurricane. This kid named Trey Zudi was just jamming on a guitar, and I was real bored, and you always just went up to the basketball courts to hang out, and he was, like, jamming on a guitar, and I was like, I'll try to sing, and then I tried, and then I tried again, and then that video, I, I like, was like, you know what? I'm just going to try it. Like, what could it hurt if I tried singing? That's crazy. You're like a kid who's walking by a ball field, and you're like, oh, man, there's a ball laying down there. Let me just grab it. Oh, you, you have a glove on over there? Am I supposed to throw it to you? Yeah. Pow! 102-mile-an-hour fastball. And you're like, wow. Nate Smith talks about the odd jobs that he had while he was trying to make it in music, and Nate shares how working in the medical field and writing songs are actually very similar. So I read you went back home, right? And almost gave up on singing. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, so, so what made you just want to give up? Yeah, just to be honest, I, I, I was crazy in love um, with this Southern Belle, and we got married um, my first time moving here. She was my next-door neighbor, um, oh. and we just had just a lot of passion for each other. We, we, we eloped. Okay. Um, we did. And uh, I'm a really open book, by the way. Like, I don't – there's nothing to hide. In that Which, kind of okay, thing. good. I was wondering. I was like, if you don't feel comfortable talking about something, no, it's, it's all good. No, it's totally but... <laughs> cool. I, I, I mean, I've told this to a lot of people, you right. know, and stuff, and um, I honestly wish her really well. We haven't talked in a long time, but – we ended up divorcing. It, it didn't work. It was really painful for both of us. Um, but that's what ultimately led me back to California. So mm-hmm. like, I just was like at the bottom of the barrel, just upset, 
you know, um, and my publishing company was like, we're not going to keep you signed if you're not going to stay in Nashville. I'm like, well, I got to go home and be with my family. So I went home and luckily I've been a nurse assistant since I was 18. So I had a job everywhere I went okay. in a hospital or a, a elderly home or anything like that. So I went back and started working right away um, at, at a hospital and started taking care of patients. So. And didn't you have other odd jobs too? You were Uber driver. Is that right? Yep. That I did I Uber. I was a courier for a dental lab. Um, just uh, worked at hotels and just whatever I could get, you know? Right. But I'm assuming since you go back there, you're like, okay, something is still missing. You know, like, I know this is in my heart. This yeah. is what I want to do. Yeah. So now what? You know, I'm it was always, hearing- it was always a, uh, there was always a lot of like, um, confliction with it because like I would ask my friends and they'd be like, you know, deep down you want to do music. I'm like, yeah, mm-hmm. but nursing's really great. And I love taking care of people. So I was really split between these two worlds. And I feel like for the first time in my life now, those two worlds have collided in a good way. Like I feel like I am helping people and I'm making music. So it's kind of like this cool thing where I'm like, I feel like nurse singing Nate or something. Or like, I don't <laughs> right? know. You know like, no, it's so true. Yeah. Like the therapeutic part yeah. of music, that's what it is. It's yeah. like healing and you get to do both. That's awesome. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So you did come back after or what was the turning point that made you move back to Nashville? For the second time? Yes. For the second time. So, uh, so I was working as a nurse assistant. I was working in ICU and trauma, mm-hmm. taking care of patients, really crazy stuff, you know, like doing compressions, CPR on people in front of their family, nice. like crazy stuff, like just, oh my God. And uh, yeah, it just, it was just one of those things. I was helping out my brother at his church. He was a youth pastor. Uh, I was helping out the youth band and like getting them together and like, hey, you play this, you play this, and then this is your part. And like kind of, kind of raised them up a little bit. It was really cool. And then um, I'm sure it's not every blog that I've uh, talked on and stuff, but, um, uh, my, my town caught on fire, um, kind of out of nowhere. Which um, is, I did not know this, yeah. honestly. Oh, I didn't really? know this part about you. No. Oh gosh. Okay. Yeah. And so, so this is a huge thing that a lot of people may not even know also. Oh man. Okay. Yeah. So paradise, California. So it's called the campfire. It a couple years ago, just randomly caught. It was, uh, 2018, November uh, 11th of 2018. Um, and, uh, yeah, or November 8th. Yeah, I get it kind of mixed up, but um, but it happened, and then like we lost everything I've ever owned in my entire oh my life. Gosh. My brother lost his house; they just had a baby. Um, I lost my apartment with all my stuff. Like, really, really, really traumatic. And then about ninety people passed away in that fire because oh, it was so like terrible. they're all trying to leave at the same time, and it just wasn't working. So, um, yeah, it was a really scary day, you know, because yes. like my brother called me and was like, "I'm having a hard time getting out of here," and and it was really, really hard. It's really hard. And then once, once he came, my dad had a house in the town right next door to us called Chico. Uh-huh. Um, so we all met up at my dad's and then my brother's like, Hey, I'm good. And they, when he came into the door, we we're just like weeping. And like, I hugged him. I'm like, dude, I'm so thankful you're okay. Like it was, it was nuts. And then you'd go to like, there was just chaos in that whole city. Like people were sleeping in tents and, and the Walmart parking lots, mm-hmm. all this stuff. So I was lucky enough to have a place, a house to go to because everything rented up too within the first day or two. So you right. couldn't even get a rental anywhere. Like, it was pretty nuts. I can't even, I can't even imagine that. Yeah. Is, it's terrible. Yeah. For that There's family. a documentary on Netflix too. Really? Yeah. Um, about it on there. So I think Ron Howard produced it. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to mm-hmm. check that out because I mean, that's crazy. And that's a huge moment also like for your career too, as far as inspiring you, you know, to want to do more with music. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of what started it in a sense. Cause um, I'm going to tell this part really quick. Um, but when I first moved to Nashville, my supervisor at Starbucks, cause I got a regular job when I was out here the first time, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, his name was Tom Beaupre 
and Tom was looking for gigs and stuff. So Tom actually was my, I was his first gig as a bass player. Um, and after I left Nashville, he went on to be part of Florida Georgia line for the last, like whatever, 10 years that they ran Oh wow! their, his, their main bass player. Yeah. So we reconnected kind of right before the fire and stuff and we're talking and stuff. And so when the fire happened, I moved in with my dad. He ended up calling up a company that, that gave his band guitars. Um, so they sent me an acoustic guitar, uh, <laughs> I lost my other one. I skipped uh-huh. in and stuff. I'm in the fire. And yeah, so I had this guitar sitting on my front doorstep and I ended up writing a song about paradise called One of These Days with one of my friends and just put it up on Facebook just to like help out the community and stuff like that. And it ended up like locally, like touching a lot of people. And it was just really, really, really rad to see that happen. And uh, I uh, started doing benefit concerts and stuff. And then we got this idea where like, what if we, what if we record it and then give all the money away to somebody who's in need or a charity in the area or Red Cross or whatever we can do. So we did. So we flew to Nashville, recorded this song. Um, I met up with Tom Beaupre to thank him, like for giving me the guitar. And yeah. he said, hey, you should have my friend Joel Briere mix your mix this song for you. I'm like, who's Joel? He's just a good friend of mine. Now Joel, <laughs> long story short, has become one of my best friends. And he's he. I have a few songs. The first songs I put out, Sleeve, Under My Skin, Wildfire, um, I Don't Want to Go to Heaven, were all produced by Joel. So like, it's no just way. how that, from literally... Met up with Tom at lunch. He called Joel. That's how he met and that whole thing. So then I come back to, to California, um, raised some money on the song and everything I had. I ended up giving it to this really cool single mom who like was moving out of paradise, who lost okay. everything. Um, and, it, and I looked at her and I was like, the reason I got the guitar, the reason that I wrote the song, the reason that I met this person, that person was all because of you. Like, like this was meant to be your moment. Like, and it was like the coolest thing to see that happen. And like, that's so cool. Like, that's how loved you are. Like, you know, like, yes. it was just really cool to see that. So. That's what started it. And then I started writing songs again. I started working with um, with Joel and flying in and out of Nashville. And then eventually my friends were like, you should go back. And they raised a GoFundMe to get me to go to Nashville. But my lease didn't start until July. This was like in April or something uh, or May, somewhere around there. And uh, so I had to live out of my car for about a month and a half and um, stayed in rest stops, um, camped, uh, met random people on the road, stayed in their, their living rooms, like whatever I could do. Um, until I got to Nashville. So, Thanks for listening to the special edition of the Bobbycast. All about artists that had to work hard doing something else in order to get where they wanted to get. Hopefully that inspired you or at least entertained you. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe to the Bobbycast wherever you are listening to this and please rate it five stars. We're back next week with a brand new episode. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. 
That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.